This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by Devane's Cheddar Goblin brand macaroni and cheese. Cheddar Goblin, it's goblin good. Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. And it is Nightmarish Cult Week here on Pod Cemetery with 1943's The Seventh Victim and 2018's Mandy. But before we get to the movies, Kelsey, how do we start the show? Horror trivia. Give me what you got. What 2006 horror film about an alien plague was directed by director James Gunn? An alien plague? Yes. Are they talking about Slither? Yes. Okay. <laughs> well, that's a weird way to put it, a plague. I don't know if I'd call it a plague. <laughs> but sure. I guess, did, did we did we treat it as a plague when we talked about it? Or I mean, it's more it just with... aliens wanting to take over the Earth. Right, and they're infesting bodies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but still, I don't know if I'd call it. It's not like a disease. <laughs> All right, Kelsey. Our first movie today, The Seventh Victim, was produced by Val Luton for RKO Radio Pictures. The production company that brought us such classics as King Kong, It's a Wonderful Life, and this film, directed by an amateur and widely regarded as one of the best movies of all time. Is it just a regular movie or is it a horror movie? It's, it's not a horror movie. It's not a horror movie. No. Citizen Kane? It is Citizen Kane. Okay. Directed by Orson Welles. It was his first ever movie. Yeah. Uh, there's a whole movie about it starring Liev Schreiber. Uh, it's RKO 481 or something like that. Find that movie with RKO and then a series of numbers. It's all about the making of Citizen Kane. But yeah, they made those movies and the first movie in this episode, The Seventh Victim from 1943. Like I said, it was produced by Val Luton, who produced several horror movies in the 40s and early 50s. This is the first one of his we've covered on the show. Odds are we'll probably get to cat people at some point. It was directed by Mark Robson and written by Charles O'Neill and DeWitt Bodine. Do it. Starring Kim Hunter, Tom Conway, Gene Brooks, Airford Gage, and Hugh Beaumont. This is also the directorial debut of Mark Robson, who was an employee of RKO. I guess he edited some of their movies. He also directed Peyton Place and The Inn of the Sixth Happiness, for which he was nominated for... Oscars, and Valley of the Dolls he also directed. Love Valley of the Dolls. Heard of Peyton Place. I have never actually seen Cat People. No. Which, as I said, is produced by Val Luton. But Tom Conway, who plays Dr. Lewis Judd in this movie, plays the same character in Cat People, I guess is a way to kind of like bring people in like, hey, remember Cat People? That was so successful. Like one of the characters from that is in this. And spoilers for Cat People, 
Dr. Lewis Judd dies in that movie, so it doesn't make any sense that he's in this one. I guess technically it could be chronologically flipped, and this happens before that one. Mm -hmm. But again, I haven't seen Cat People, so I can't tell you if that would hold up to any sort of scrutiny. (laughs) Also, interestingly, I mentioned Hugh Beaumont, who plays the character of Gregory Ward, also played another Ward, Ward Cleaver, in Leave it to Beaver. Interesting. What is the seventh victim about, Kelsey? Good luck. A woman is informed that her sister has gone missing, and so she looks for her, and that leads her to a devil-worshipping cult. Sure, yes. That's great. It's going to be much harder to describe the plot in greater detail than that, though. (laughs) It's so dense. (laughs) It's so dense. Yes, this movie probably prided itself on the fact that you learn something new in every scene. Yeah, like, it's an hour and ten minutes long, and it is just nothing but new information. <laughs> it's like, da, 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 So you feel like you're getting beat up by the exposition in this movie. <laughs> it is $2 to rent and $6 to buy on iTunes and Amazon Prime, or 3 and 10 on Vudu. Should people watch The Seventh Victim? I mean, I think it's good. I- I'm glad I saw it, but... It's funny because, like I said, every scene you get new information, but not a lot happens. No. So even though it's constantly just like, oh, this new thing, this new thing, this new thing. Yes, yes, you're constantly being barraged with just here's what's happening, here's what's happening. But like nothing really happens. Yeah, I mean... it. Seventh Victim and Mandy are a little bit similar in this way, where it's almost like a checklist of things that need to happen in order. And it's just, let's get to that thing. Okay, now we do this thing. And now we do this thing. And now we do this thing. (laughs) And that's kind of what both of these movies are like. They're very, they're wildly different movies, obviously. But uh, that's a, a little way that they're similar. It was very charming, And it has a very 40s ending, too. Oh, it does. A very 40s ending. But, I mean, it's well put together. I mean, but Chris and I both were just like, we're a bunch of scenes missing? Which is, again, funny because in every scene you get new information. And yet it would get to the next scene and you'd be like, okay, I don't know how they got here. (laughs) Um, Because the last scene did not tell me that they were going anywhere, but suddenly they're in this new place. (laughs) I seem to remember reading somewhere that, yes, I don't know if it was Val Luton's son or if it was Mark Robson's son, but somebody was commenting on the fact that it was heavily edited at the time and they took a lot of scenes out That may be the case. It definitely feels that way. I mean, like, look, at one point you're going to find out that a character is in love with the main character. And, like, have they had slight, like... There's, like, nothing. Flirtish interaction, maybe slightly, but not nearly enough to suddenly be like, he's in love with her. The only thing, they're just just attractive straight people. (laughs) And they need to be paired up. And it's not even the pair that you would expect, either. no. It's not. The movie, like, totally makes you think she's going to end up with somebody else. And then all of a sudden it's just like, he loves her and no. she's just going to be with him. Okay. She needs, she needs to end up with the square-jawed hunk. The one that makes all the money. did. Yes, exactly. Not the down-on-his-luck poor poet. Can't end up with him. No. Even though they're clearly better for each other. And the <laughs> entire time you're thinking that he is in love with her and then you find out later 
that it's because he's been building her up for the other guy, kind of like in Cyrano de Bergerac. And yes, they will bring up Cyrano de Bergerac and make a- Bergerac. Whatever. And they will make an analogy. (laughs) But it's like, there was nothing in the film that made you think- When he first dropped the Cyrano reference, I was like, wait, what? Yeah. Wait, what's happening? (laughs) Because it comes out of nowhere. You have absolutely no idea that this person has fallen for this girl, and for whatever reason, the poet feels the need to build her up for love for this other guy. And it just, there's, there were things that are missing. The other guy who is married, by the way, to her sister. Yes. Like... Come on. <laughs> yes, like there are definitely scenes but, missing. <laughs> but like I said, it's like an hour and 10 minutes long and But it feels longer because, because as I've said yeah, multiple you're times. Pelted in the face with all this exposition. Sure. Yes. But it is much more entertaining than anything else you're gonna spend an hour and ten minutes on today, probably. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you watching? I think it's way better than you would expect a movie from 1943 to be. Yeah, it was fascinating. They put a lot of thought into the plot as far as, like, what happens when, but it it just feels like they rushed through everything. You could take our advice or leave it, but when we get back, we will talk about 1943's The Seventh Victim. Hi there, everybody. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ben Mankiewicz. We're celebrating this night before Halloween with a collection of some of the best, most respected horror films from the 1940s, all of them produced by the same man, Val Luton. Up next from 1943, it's The Seventh Victim. As the film begins, we meet a beautiful young woman played by future Oscar winner Kim Hunter making her big screen debut here. We soon discover that her sister is missing and Hunter travels to New York City to see if she can find her. But what Hunter is going to discover in New York is that somehow her sister got mixed up with a satanic cult. Look, uh, no offense to our fans in satanic cults, but they're not generally portrayed well in movies. For RKO, however, this movie about a satanic cult turned out to be a serious moneymaker from producer Val Luton. When studio executives at RKO hired Luton to head up their new horror movie division, the idea was to try to duplicate the success Universal had been having with franchises like Frankenstein, Dracula, and the Wolfman. But Luton had different ideas. He didn't want to bring monsters to the screen. Luton wanted to replace those monsters with something he found just as terrifying, fear of the unknown. In the process, Val Luton became one of the most influential movie producers of all time from 1943, also featuring Tom Conway and Hugh Beaumont, directed by Mark Robeson as part of our Night Before Halloween tribute to Val Luton. Here's the seventh victim. I run to death, and death meets me as fast, and all my pleasures are like yesterday. Holy Sonnet 7, John Donne. That's how this movie begins, Kelsey, but what happens next? All right, so we meet our main character who is named... Mary Gibson, played by Kim Hunter. Yes. She is at a boarding school where she is told that her sister, who was paying her tuition, hasn't paid it in six months. And they're like, look, we've tried to contact her. Like, this is actually very surprising. If you've ever seen A Little Princess... (laughs) then you know (laughs) that boarding schools don't wait very long for tuition. And of course they wouldn't. That's the only way they make money. So, like, the fact that they would wait six months is is surprising. And the fact that she's so kind 
yeah, in she's this like, whole moment. No, we reached out to an ex-person at her company, and she wouldn't get back to us. We tried several times. And this woman seems like a stern sort of headmistress, but she's like, like you say, really kind. It's it's remarkable. And Mary's like, well, I got to go find her. I got to check it out. And she's like, I don't think you're going to get anything out of this contact that we had. Uh, but if you want to go, we'll foot your bill to get you to New York and have you investigate. Like, Jesus, okay. Well, but then you find out she also offers her, and this is a kind thing to do. Now, we're going to find out that, like, working here is shit like you wouldn't expect it to be. Less that it's shit and more that, like, if you want to go out into the world and make something of yourself, don't stay and work for the same boarding school where you were raised. Like, nothing will become of you, like, is kind of the point. You'll get stuck here and yeah. you'll never do anything else. Uh-huh. Mary, don't come back. No matter if you never find your sister, no matter what happens to you, don't come back. My parents died when I was a pupil. I left as you are leaving, but I didn't have courage. One must have courage to really live in the world. I came back. Yeah, but the headmistress offers her a job. If we can't keep you on at this boarding school, we can pay you to be an employee and watch over the younger kids. Mm-hmm. Which, again, yeah, it it's it's good for them. It's Incredibly an easy, kind. <laughs> yeah, but it's also good for them. It's an easy way to get employment. Yeah, uh-huh. It's an easy way to get somebody who's down on their luck uh-huh. and is and needs, and needs your you, assistance. right? But none of that matters because she's never going to come back. So yes. she leaves, and she immediately goes to her sister's old job, and apparently she owned a cosmetics company with another woman, which for the forties is a huge deal. Yeah, for a right. Woman. <laughs> It's kind of nuts. For two women to have a cosmetics company completely run by themselves is very impressive. But she acts like she has no clue where her sister is. She sold her half of the business to her, and then she took off, is what she tells her. While there, though, she will run into another woman named Frances. Yes. Who is younger and more friendly. And she tells her, you know what? I saw your sister a week ago at the Dante. So it's a it's a... Restaurant. restaurant. So that's where she goes next. Like an authentic Italian restaurant run by Italian immigrants. Yes. So she goes there and she talks to the people who own it, uh, the Italian immig- immigrants, and she tries to get them to figure out who her sister is. And you know what she tells them? She's so beautiful. You would have known. And then they're like, oh, do you mean this woman? Yeah. <laughs> like, she does nothing to describe what she looks uh-huh. like, and her sister has a very particular look. Like, she could have talked about her hair or oh, her eyes. Very much so, yes. And she does nothing. She's just like, she's so beautiful, you would have known. And they're like, oh, yeah, that chick? Uh-huh. What? <laughs> but okay. It's also funny that the family's like, we're just a restaurant. We don't, you know, like, and then you find out that, no, it's not just a restaurant. They also rent rooms. Yes. <laughs> And she has a room there, and they were like, we can't let you in uh, because, you know, it's not She's your room. She's paid rent, which is, like, months in advance. Which is absolutely true. Yes. They should not have let her in. 
She convinces them to help her because she puts on her, like, puppy dog eyes and says, like, she might be in danger. Yes, but very much illegal. Oh, that yeah, can get absolutely. you in a lot of trouble. Ab- you're just going to fall for some rando that, kind of, like, you don't know that she's her sister. Exactly. And even if she showed you identification, like, you have no idea what their relationship is. order. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But they do it. They open it up. And what do they find? An empty room except for a chair and a noose hanging from the ceiling. Yes. So absolutely, she's just like, oh, no, this is not good. So she goes to the police. Well, they call the police. This is also when she meets the poet. And we don't really get any clarification on how she met him. The poet eats there at the Dante. Yes. And he sees her talking to these people and he kind of like, you know, imposes himself on the scenario. At one point, in fact, the woman who runs the restaurant is like, hey, can you go cheer her up? Because she's very Well, that's later. Yes, I know. After they've met each other. But like here, he just comes out of nowhere. Uh And he also will say to her, because, okay, so the police are like, you need to fill out a missing persons report. And I forget why she's against doing that. But- the poet is like, perhaps you don't want to find your sister. Who sticks to your poetry? You're the poet, Jason. Well, in a way, that makes everything my business, doesn't it? Were you going to make a suggestion? Yes. I was going to ask you to look into your own heart. Do you really want to find your sister? <laughs> oh, my Jason. Excuse me? I just met you. Who the you to talk about me and my sister's relationship and also there's no indication that she doesn't want to find her sister it was a weird thing to say so she goes and she puts in her report and of course it feels hopeless and while she's doing this a private investigator approaches her and is like hey i heard you're looking for your sister the police aren't going to do shit you pay me 50 bucks I'll find her. And you know what? The first thing I do is go to the morgue, you know, and the cops. And that all they costs don't... money. He explained. That's why he explains it costs money. He's like, hey, I got to go to the morgue. I got to pay for this report. I got to do all this. And she's like, well, I can't afford to pay you to do that. And he's like, well, then good fucking luck. And so what does she do? She goes to the morgue. Exactly what he said he was going to do. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I, that's exactly what I would do. I would listen to what he said, and I'd be like, mm. okay, I can do that myself. I don't need to pay you to do it. Meanwhile, this other private detective comes up to the first one and says, hey, keep your nose out of this Jacqueline stuff. You know who I am, August? Sure I do. And you know, if I give you a little advice, it'll be good advice. Yeah, sure. That girl was looking for Jacqueline Gibson. If I were you, I'd forget it. Okay, Mr. Veto. It's forgot. Yeah, he's looking for Jacqueline Gibson. Leave it alone, which immediately sparks his interest. So Mary will go to the morgue where she doesn't find anybody, but they tell her to go and speak with this dude who we know that her sister has been involved with some guy because he was the one who was paying for the room. Is what they told us. Yeah. Some other dude was paying for it for her. So she goes to speak with this guy. Gregory Ward tells her, I love your sister. And she asks him about the room and he explains, look, your sister thought life wasn't worth living unless you could end it. Today I found out such strange things. Frightening things. I saw a hangman's noose that Jacqueline had hanging. Waiting. Well, at least I can explain that. Your sister had a feeling about life, that it wasn't worth living unless one could end it. 
we had to rewind on this this conversation because yeah. it's it's confusing. What we think he means is she felt like life isn't worth living unless you can live it on your own terms. Yes. But that's not how he phrases it. No. And it's 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 almost like this room is symbolic. That she knows she has this room so she can end her life whenever she wants to, which gives her a reason to seek out things that are worth living for. I guess is the point. It's not well constructed. They just want this room for the ending. It's, guys. Well, also it sounds poetic. <laughs> you know? This movie has a sort of poetry to it. But he also she says, but why would you let her do that? Like if you if you supposedly love my sister, why would you let her do this? He's like, well, you can't control Jacqueline. Actually, what he says is, well, people who commit suicide don't talk about it. Yeah. Weren't you afraid? Afraid she might commit suicide? People who commit suicide don't talk about it. No, that room made her happy. In some strange way, I couldn't understand. That's not true. It is a long-standing understanding of suicidal people that if you really mean to commit suicide, you wouldn't tell anybody about it. When you tell people about it, it means you want help and attention. And that's really fucked up because those very same people oftentimes do end up trying to commit suicide. Well, I mean, look. they don't get that. I always go back to, I, I heard a, a speech once in college about a woman who was talking about her sister who had committed suicide. And she was talking about, you know, all these things that you can do to help people that you know that are dealing with these thoughts. And she was just like. She wasn't talking specifically about what we're talking about, but it relates. So she says, for a very long time, I felt extremely guilty. I felt like my sister told me all the time how she was feeling, and, you know, I just didn't do enough to save her. And what doctors told me, what actual doctors told me was, people who want to commit suicide either will or they won't, but it has nothing to do with the people around them. Mm -hmm. Like, you could have done everything you could possibly think of to help your sister. She was going to do it whether she, like, it's a choice. So the idea that somebody isn't going to do it simply because they say they're thinking about it is an absurd thing to no, me. Right, but it's something that people say. And it's very damaging. And it's very dismissive of people that obviously have emotional problems yeah it comes like to the troubles. point where it's like well if you think that then why do i talk to you about it i heard that from people my entire childhood middle school high school college like it's just a thing people take for granted and it's totally fucked i think it's i think it stems from especially high school age yeah because a lot of high schoolers will start to think about suicide because of all of the pressures of becoming an adult and all that. So, like, it feels like every it, everything becomes super overwhelming. So a lot of parents learn to disregard their kids' like feelings of intense overwhelming because it's like you're a kid. You feel that way. You're gonna get over it. But it's like. If you don't listen, right. if you don't care, mm -hmm. then that kid's going to feel even more hopeless. Right. And might actually do it because you didn't care. Right. And obviously you're like, you're just a kid. Yeah. They're just a kid who might make bad decisions. Yes. Yes. And all it takes is one bad decision. 
Yeah, in fact, I would be far more concerned about a high school kid because they they feel so much pressure that they might do it just, like, even if they don't even really want to, they might do it just because of how strong it feels for them. Mm-hmm. And we do know that until you reach the age of 25, we do know that your brain is constantly changing. Yeah. So it's an absurd thing to say that. I don't understand. Yeah, so beware, kind of fucked up thoughts on suicide in this movie. He also says that he is concerned about her, though, because sometimes it seems like she doesn't know what the truth is. But then, let's go have dinner. Yeah. What? I'm sorry, what? Like, this whole scene, they're sitting there talking about her sister and her sister's major mental issues. Let's go have dinner together, just you and me. Yep. If you can't tell, they're setting this up for a relationship. Now, at the time when I first oh, saw it... I, I wrote it off. Like, I didn't think it was anything. Uh, at first, I was like, he's doing this to make her feel better. He feels yeah. sorry for uh-huh. her because her yeah, sister's exactly. gone missing. You do not pick up on the fact that it's because they have feelings for Especially each other. Especially since, I mean, I know it's the 40s, but we're introduced to Mary in a boarding school. And... She's going, she's looking for her adult older sister, and she runs into, as far as she's aware, her adult older sister's adult boyfriend. Yes. We're supposed to believe that this is the beginning of a beautiful relationship? Like, oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, there are a lot of questionable morals in this film. I forget who she finds out. Oh, it must, oh, it's the... It probably doesn't matter. In the next scene, the investigator shows up. (laughs) Again, okay. And he is telling her, hey, I did some digging, even though you didn't pay me. And I found out that your sister's co-worker lied to you. She did not sell her shit. She gifted the rest of the business to her. And it's like, okay, now the question is, First of all, why would my sister do that? Why would she just mm. gift her half of the business? But also, why did her employee, like, coworker, lie to me? Yeah. Right now, the question is, is she telling the truth? He tells her, the reason I found this out, I went to the business myself. And I looked through the business, and guess what? There's one room that's locked. There's only one room they wouldn't let me go into. And I'm very curious yeah. as to what's in that room. I posed as a health inspector, and they showed me everything except for that one room. So they go, and he tries to talk her out of it. He's like, this is breaking and entering. It's all, I'm also terrified right now. Yes, but she doesn't care, and she keeps going. And then they get to, like, this dark hallway, which is where apparently the door at the end of the hall is. And she asks him, are you scared? And he says, yes. And he says, let's leave. And she goes, no, you're going to go down there and open the door. What the fuck? You're not even paying me, lady. <laughs> I was I was not happy. I was like, I get that this is because it's the 40s and she's a woman. I yeah. get that, but this is fucked. She, she's not paying him. He's terrified. He doesn't want to do this. He and tells she's her gonna that much. make him open the door. Yeah. Fucked. Totally. While she fucked. stays at the other end of the hallway, safe in the light. Yes. So He goes back there, and then he comes back to her, and he looks really weird, and she's like, what's going on? And he's not saying anything. And then she touches him, and he collapses, and we find out that he has been stabbed in the stomach. 
So she leaves. Because <laughs> fuck this. <laughs> so she goes and gets onto the subway. And we find out that she's, you know, in shell shock. So she's just been sitting there, like, on the whole, it went through its whole, I don't know, route. And then when she realizes this and she realizes, oh, I should get off, she then sees these two dudes carrying a guy on. And it's very obviously the guy that she was the just The private with. investigator who's now, who she knows is dead. And they're trying to pass him off as drunk. So she gets up and she, like... Scurries away, very trying to obvious. find help. Yeah, but she's she's trying to look natural and totally failing. <gasps> she finds the she finds the conductor, whoever it is that that's been on this this uh, subway train with her, and it's like ah, there's two men over there, and there's another third man, and he is dead. She, he's like, what the fuck? They go back into that car, and there's no one there because they had just stopped at a new station and taken him off. Cause obviously they're like, Oh, she knows let's get off this station. Yes. <laughs> but I swear they were there. So she goes to tell Ward about what has happened. She's like, he was a kind man in his way. Bitch, you are talking about a guy who died for you. Yeah. Uh-huh. Like, what a bitch. Totally. But she's like, you know, I made him go down that way. And she's feeling guilty about it. And he says to her, drink your milk. Which makes her upset. And she's like, do not talk to me like a fucking child. And I made him go down that hole into the darkness. I made him do it. Drink your milk. I don't like to be ordered to do anything. I'm sorry. I didn't intend to treat you like a child. But you have treated me that way. I won't do it again. We're friends. I promise I'll never order you about again. And he apologizes, but again, this should be driving home to you guys that Chris's point is right. He thinks of her as a child. Uh Uh-huh. And he is supposedly in love with her. Uh Uh-huh. This is problematic. Like, it's so, it's very uncomfortable. But then he also says, hey, guess what? I got you a job. You're going to be a kindergarten teacher. As a teacher, was not happy about this. (laughs) Who knew that you could just say, I'm going to be a teacher. Uh-huh. And just go and get that job. Yeah. You don't have to go to school. Well, in the 40s. <laughs> do shit. <laughs> You're a woman who is good with children. You're a teacher. Must be nice. Uh-huh. Must be nice. And they're singing the Bells of St. Clemens or whatever that song is. Yes, which was another <laughs> weird thing. But that is a child's rhyme from England. But yeah. apparently we taught it too. I don't know. It's weird. This is when the doctor will show up at Ward's office. Uh Uh-huh, Dr. Judd. And he will tell Ward that Jacqueline needs money. She can't come to you because she is in danger right now. And you can't come to her because she's in a fragile mental state. Yes, but he says, I'm not going to give you any money until I can see her and I know that she's okay. But the doctor tells him she could lose her sanity. Do you want to be uh, the reason that happens? Right. So again, no identification, no proof of anything. Just, just I know her name, and I know well, he her knows relationship that he to was see- she was seeing him as her doctor. Okay, he does know that. Yes, does okay. yes. They they know each other previously. Uh-huh. He was her therapist. The doctor tells Ward 
she can only use cash and she needs a hundred bucks. Uh-huh. And Ward's Sounds like Sounds like extortion. I got forty-five dollars. <laughs> and the doctor's like, we'll take it. Which, yeah, it does not sound good. If I was if I was Ward, I'd be like, dude, is my wife like shacking up with you? Yeah. Uh-huh. But he trusts him, apparently. Ward then tells Mary, this doctor is going to take you to see your sister. Yeah. So they do. They go to his apartment building, and it's interesting because there's two stairways, and he specifically says, One can take either staircase. I prefer the left, the sinister side. What? You are a therapist. Yeah, right? He's just having fun. So they go there, and she's not there, but Mary finds that a cigarette has been left and just was just barely started to be smoked. He says, I can't meet them alone. She's left me to meet them oh, right. alone. Yes. And then he leaves Mary. Uh-huh. And now- so Mary's like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> she opens the door and sees Jacqueline, her sister, who just goes, shh, like, finger to her mouth. And then closes the door. She walks out to look for Jacqueline. And when she comes back inside, that guy's already in there. (laughs) That guy being the large private detective who tried to threaten the first private detective back at the police station. Tell him to, to keep your nose out of this Jacqueline business. Now says to Mary, where's your sister? This this scene. <laughs> like, I honestly don't know what's going on. <laughs> yeah, this scene is hokey as heck. Because, okay, they walk in and she's not there. This doctor, who knows what's going on with Jacqueline. Mary has no fucking clue what's going on with Jacqueline. The doctor knows what's going on. And the doctor recognizes that he might be in danger and just leaves the younger sister there to deal with it herself. Yeah. That's fucked up. Then we see Jacqueline, and it's this bizarre moment. She she looks like she looks to the side, and then she she shushes her, and it like. But there's nothing there. Why is she acting like this? And then when she goes out, her sister has disappeared, almost like she has magical abilities, which she doesn't. And then she walks back in, and this person is already inside. Like this is a this scene is absurd, yes. absurd. But so, yeah, she talks to him and finds out that he's working for Ward, and big surprise, Ward is actually her sister's husband. Yes. We've kind of been saying that a bunch up to this point and haven't been clear on that. Yes. It is a mystery at first, the relationship between Ward and Jacqueline. And here we find out for certain that he is her husband, and Mary didn't even know she was married. So cut to Mary confronting Ward and being like, what the fuck? Yeah. And he, I mean, he gives a good explanation. He's like, I had never met you. And when you walked in, I asked you, did your sister tell you about me? And you said no. So what am I supposed to say? Yeah, I'm actually her husband. And she just never told you. uh Sorry. Like, you know, and so I kind of understand that. Also, if you know I'm married to your sister, it makes it harder for me to get into your pantaloons. But so they're having this very serious conversation at Dante's. And the poet is sitting there having dinner as well. And this is when the one who works there is like, look at how upset those two are. Go and interrupt their conversation and make them happy. Yes. So he does. And when he does sit down and they are talking, he tells Jacqueline, I'll find your sister. We have 
zero. <laughs> we find out why later he wants to do this, but yeah. like she doesn't know. Right. He's just some random poet from the restaurant. And she's just like, okay. <sighs> so they go someplace, the three of them. They suddenly are at a party where the doctor is and he's doing magic card tricks. <laughs> what? <laughs> Why? There's also a woman there with only one arm, but she very obviously just has it behind her back. It's a weird thing. Yeah. A weird little thing that they included. But so the poet comes up to the doctor and he's like, where's Jacqueline? I saw you with her. So we find out that there's a history between the poet and the doctor, which is why the poet wants to help her find her Uh sister. They're both very rude to each other. They clearly uh-huh. uh, have distaste for one another. Yeah, but it's interesting. They know each other and like, yeah, they know the people who are throwing this party. So we find out that the poet was in love with some girl who was seeing the doctor and she too disappeared. So that's why he wants to help Mary find Jacqueline because yes. he's like, I don't want what happened to me to happen to you. We also find out that the poet has not written in 10 years. Apparently he's very famous because he wrote some incredible book 10 years ago, but hasn't been able to write since. Then we start to see this conversation with some woman at this party who is telling Mary, you know, me and Jacqueline, oh, we were so close. We were so intimate, but you're just a child. I can't tell you about that, which... Has were all you, kinds of. Were you lovers? Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> what indication are you giving the audience right now? She says something, and I'm apparently did not write it down. But she says something, and seriously, guys, the music changes. Like, yes. it's not. It's not like a, a subtle thing. No, <laughs> it is full on. Like, <laughs> the music totally changes in this moment where it's like, oh. We just learned something serious about Jacqueline's uh-huh. condition. Okay. Thank you for letting us but know. It's, but it's to be clear, it's diegetic music. Yes. So they're playing music at this party, <laughs> and the music changes just as she says this thing. And I also can't remember what it is. <laughs> and then this woman, so apparently she says something that kind of like, oh, you weren't supposed to say that. And then she full on talks shit about Dr. Judd. Like, who his face? He's right there. He's stand Like, it's not like he's in the room. We're all kind of standing in a conversation circle. And he's one of the people in the circle. It's so bizarre. It is bizarre. Like, I had... We, it's again, like, oh, oh, she was seeing Dr. Judd? Well, then no wonder she disappeared. Yeah. I think that might be what she says when the music changes. It, I mean, we had to rewind and watch the scene again. Because <laughs> yes. we were just like, did she just say shit about him to his face? He doesn't and react at he do, all. Yeah, he does not react in the slightest. <laughs> it like, is weird. Whatever, haters gonna hate. <laughs> Miss Gibson's sister is missing. Missing? Well, no wonder. When she took up with Lewis Judd, she went out of circulation just like that. My dear, have I said something? But so the poet tells her, I'm a failure at life, but I won't fail at this. I will find your sister for you. And then we cut to him at a library. Yeah. Because he's like, I want to know what these two people have. So he wants to know. I think he actually works 
at the library. That's how he makes his money when he's not writing. Oh, I don't know. I think that's the case. That's how he knows the librarian. And he's totally flirting with her. To get her to do... Yeah. To give her... Again, information that you should not be able to get. Uh-huh. Just like in Seven, where they go and they look at, like, who uh, looked up these books. Uh-huh. It's very similar to that. You, as an American citizen, you should have the, you should be allowed to read whatever you want, and the government should not be allowed to know. Right. But they do. <laughs> <laughs> So he finds out what both the doctor and the other woman who owns the cosmetic company, what they have taken out. Now, they have both checked out a book about old religious texts. Right. And it's a book that's so old and rare that you need to get approval to check it out. And it gets reviewed every time it's checked back in. And first the doctor checked it out. And then it was reviewed and reviewed as pristine or whatever it is that he says. And then this other woman, Mrs. Reddy, checks out the book as well. And now there's this piece of paper in the book, which obviously means that that came from Mrs. Reddy because nobody else could get to the book. And the only person that's checked it out since it was deemed pristine was her. So, like, it must come from – and it's this weird symbol, this unknown symbol – Yes, and it would have been much better if they had made it so that the doctor had taken it out after Mrs. Reddy. That would have made more sense. No, because Mrs. Reddy is the one who is interested in that symbol. The doctor's not. Right. I'm saying the only reason that the doctor would have taken out that book was after he spoke to Jacqueline, who would have talked to him about the group, and then he would have taken out the book to learn about it. Yeah, it, it doesn't – okay, so what the movie never does is it never explains why the two of these people happen to check out the same book because it doesn't have anything to do with each other. Like, it's totally random. Dr. Judd checks it out because of something he hears from Jacqueline, and Mrs. Reddy checks it out because she has a personal interest in it. It's not like Judd checked it out and then Reddy was like, I have to check out the same book that Judd checked out. No, nothing like that. It's – it's all happenstance. They both happen to be interested in the same topic in a sort of roundabout way. But again, if they had swapped it, uh-huh. it would have made more sense because he would have heard about it from Jacqueline yeah. and then he would have looked up the book. But then they couldn't know for sh- for certain that Mrs. Reddy is the one that, that drew this symbol. Exactly. So Mary goes and gets her hair done by Francis and they just have a little chat. And she's like, well, is Mrs. Reddy nice to work for? And yada, yada, yada. So, oh, by the way, do you recognize this symbol? And Francis is like, well, I'd better. It's the symbol of the company ever since Miss Reddy took over and shows her a bottle of their product. And it has that symbol on it. Yes. We also haven't mentioned that one of the things the poet learned from the book was that their group is called the Pattalists. Pilatists. Pilatists. And that they are devil worshippers. Yes. Uh, Pilatus is real. Okay, I say real. I, uh, the concept exists in real life. It's not made up. Well, it by, sounds like Paladin. It's named after Pallas, who is Athena, basically the goddess of, of wisdom. And it is supposed to be a sort of Satanist group, a Satanist society, but there's no like real proof that it ever exists. There's just a bunch of books of people talking about it existing. And then there's a book by a guy who says he used to be a, pa- a Pilatist. I would have pronounced it Pilatist, but yeah, Pilatist. Not the same thing as a Paladin. 
But yes, during this scene, she she all she does is talk about how great Jacqueline was, how much she loved Mrs. Working for Jacqueline. When she walks out, Mrs. Reddy comes up to her and is like, hey, what the fuck? What did you talk to her about? She was like, nothing. It was just regular old conversation. She's like, tell me what you talked about. And she's like, well, she did ask about our new symbol. And she's like, oh, my God, you fucking idiot. Don't you realize that that's our symbol? And this is our first indication that this chick, Francis, is also somehow involved in the Paladus as well. Right, yeah. Because up until this point, we just thought of her as like a friend of Jacqueline's. Yeah. So because of that, Mrs. Reddy goes and pays a visit, a very ominous visit to Mary while she's in the shower. It's kind of a cool scene. She comes in and Mary's like, what the fuck? I'm in the shower. And she just talks to her. So it's really cool. We're in the shower with Mary and we see Mrs. Reddy as a silhouette through the shower curtain. And they have a conversation, and it's very intimidating. And remember, this is before Psycho. And the conversation is effectively, you do not want to find Jacqueline. Jacqueline is a murderess. She killed that private investigator. And if you find her, she will go to prison. You don't want that for your sister, do you? Which sounds like a bunch of bullshit, but it's actually true. It's actually true. <laughs> you find out later that it's totally true. <laughs> like, you're thinking, don't listen to her. Yeah. She just wants to get rid of you. Well, she does have ulterior motives, because we find out later that Mrs. Reddy doesn't want her going to the police, doesn't want her getting arrested because it might expose the society. Mm-hmm. And so she's trying to convince Mary by saying, do you want your sister to be arrested as a murderess? You know, it's in both of our best interests that you don't find her so she doesn't get caught. Then we get a scene where Mrs. Reddy is now back at that same place where we saw the party earlier. That mm-hmm. one-armed, one-armed woman is there. Uh-huh. And so is Francis. And Mrs. Reddy is talking to the group. And she's just like, I should have known that Jacqueline had no sincerity, no real belief. I should have known that. And they're all like, you know, she needs to die. She betrayed us. And they're like, no, we have pledged a thing of uh, nonviolence. We are not vengeful in what we do. And they're like, well, but then the rules are contradictory because it says that if you betray us, then you must die. And they say, look, whenever somebody does betray us, they do die, but not because we kill them. Which makes you wonder, is there some sort of magical property? Is it that if you've said something, then the demons will get you? No, not at all. Not even a little bit. (laughs) But it is interesting because they are pacifists. They're Satanists because it brings them knowledge and not because they want to hurt people. And specifically, they make a vow not to hurt anybody. But yes, one of their rules is that if somebody betrays the order, they must die. It doesn't say that the order must kill them, but that just that they must die. And Frances tries to speak up for Jacqueline. She's like, just because she went and talked to a therapist doesn't mean she betrayed us. And they're like, uh, anytime you speak about us, it doesn't matter to who, that's betrayal. Mm-hmm. And I hope that that girl figured that out. <laughs> How do you get new members? If you, First rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. Then I see a lot of people are breaking our first two rules. And then somebody finally says to her, look. 
Do you think she's going to stay quiet if she gets taken into custody? No, she's going to rat us out, so we need to take care of this. So, cut to Mary going up to the poet's home, which we've never seen before, and he he's all happy to see her. Like, at this point, guys, you absolutely think she's going to end up with the poet. Yes. Like, they're... <sighs> It takes you it takes you for a loop when you find out that she's gonna end up with Ward. But yeah. anyway, she goes up there and she's apparently saying goodbye. She's just like, This is too scary. I'm gonna go back to school. Mm-hmm. I don't know what to do. And he's like, wait a minute. This isn't how you treat a friend. I thought we were friends. And you're like, oh my God, he's actually really interested in her. He says, You've unexpectedly come. You've granted my wish. Uh-huh. But you're not in love with her. Yeah. But I guess he kind of is because that's the whole thing about Cyrano. But he says, I thought you were entering my life when you came in, but now you've come to say goodbye. And I get it. It's because he's a poet. I understand that he's being flowery, but like, it feels like he's in love with her. Uh Uh-huh. The poet tells Mary, you have to tell Gregory. He's a lawyer. He'll know what to do. Because this is when she's saying, I think my sister might have committed murder. Yeah. uh He's saying, well, then let's go talk to Gregory. He's a lawyer. He'll know what to do. She's very thankful. And she's like, you know, do you think Judd knows? And he's like, I'm sure he does. And we need to talk to him. But all of a sudden, and he gives her, she says, how can I ever thank you? And he says, you don't have to thank me. And when he says that, he picks up work. So he's been writing. Yeah. So you're instantly like, oh, she's his muse. Right, yeah. He's fallen in love with her. Uh Now that she's in his life, he can write again. No. Yeah, no. Just no. None of that is true. Kind of yes. Kind of yes. Because you get the sensation that like, oh, he does love her, but he knows what's best for her is to be with this rich lawyer man. But like this is never comes up as a as as a plot element beyond him saying like, "Oh, I think you're great, and I'm gonna help Ward get in your pants," and that's like the only conversation that happens. And then they name drop Cyrano de Bergerac later. Like, that's the plot. Like, that's weird. <laughs> but so the poet goes to Judd, and he gives him his work, and he says, "I want you to take this to your publisher." And also now you are going to tell us where Jacqueline is because at this point she's committed murder. Yeah. And we need to take care of this. So we do. We go and we see Jacqueline. And she explains that she was looking to break away from the group once she had realized what she had gotten herself into because she, and she was very miserable. But because of that, she went and spoke to her therapist and she told him about them. And that's why they said, okay, you betrayed us now. Now you have to die. Mm-hmm. So what did they do? They locked her up. In a room in the cosmetics company. Yes. And. They left her in there and they made her all paranoid. And so when. It's not very clear what was happening and, to and her. So, but, but she's terrified. Yes. And she thinks they're going to do something to her. We know that they're not because they're pacifists, right? Right. But she thinks they are. And so when this stranger comes in, she panics and stabs him with some scissors that are there. Yes. Now, here's the thing. We don't understand. Okay. Later, we're going to see that they what they want her to do is commit suicide. Yes. That's what they want her to do. We you betrayed us, so you need to die. But we can't kill you, so you should kill yourself. Uh-huh. Is what their ridiculous logic is. But if 
But what was their plan by locking her in a room? I mean, I guess she had scissors. I guess they were hoping she would stab mm. herself to or, death. They were keeping her there until they could get the group together or something like that. But she says that she was kept there for a very long uh-huh. time. Like, it. some inconsistency, some questions it's, here. What's really interesting about this, though, is that this whole speech of her story is told directly to camera. So she's got her eyes looking at the camera and the camera's kind of zoomed in on her face. And so it's like she's talking to the audience. It's interesting. I wasn't happy with him. Wanted to break away. It was miserable. I went to Lewis for help. They felt that I'd betrayed them. They wanted me to die. Kill myself. They kept me locked up at La Sagesse. I was there such a long time. You can imagine the effect of such imprisonment on Jacqueline. I was terrified. Darkness in the corners of the room. All the little noises. Then one night the door opened. A man came in. Tiptoeing in. I had a scissors in my hand. I struck at him. Don't. We know what happened. Don't go on. Any court in the land would understand. It's after this scene, and this is when the Cyrano de Bergiac thing will show up. I've always loved the story. A man knowing he couldn't have the woman he loved and wooing her for his friend. We're friends, aren't we, Gregory? And this is when I wrote down, wait a minute. The husband loves the sister? When did this happen? Yes, exactly. We also find out that what happened with Jason's old lover is that she went to see Judd, but she had a really serious problem, and so she was she ended up being committed. So she's in an asylum somewhere, and she's kind of gone insane. A raving thing, as yes. he puts it. And he says, I always felt so sorry for you that I never told you what happened. Yeah. Oh, well, it's funny how people are just like so inconsistent with the secrets that they keep and don't keep. Sometimes they just say shit that they totally shouldn't say. And other times they keep secrets because I can't tell you that would be unethical. (laughs) (laughs) So the cult members then kidnap Jacqueline. They get her back. And we see that they are all sitting around her. She's sitting in a chair and in front of her is a glass of water or something. Wine or something. Yeah. yeah, And they're all sitting around her and they're like, you must die for betraying us. You know, Jacqueline, you've spoken so often of suicide. I don't even know why this bothers you. And she just keeps saying, I don't want to. I don't want to. And they're like, well, you should want to. What you did was horrible. You should want to commit suicide for betraying us. They won't give her any food. They won't give her any water. They won't let her go to sleep. They keep telling her, like, we're going to keep doing this until you finally drink that. And they tell her, you know, it's not going to hurt. Just end it. Francis, at one point, is, like, losing her goddamn mind. She doesn't want this to happen, but this is driving her up the wall. She's losing her nerves. And so she just screams at Jacqueline to just do it already. Relieve us of this horrible, awful tension. And... Jacqueline takes the glass and she lifts it up to drink it finally, but Francis knocks it out of her hand and just falls into a sob. And says, 
I'm so sorry. Don't do it. The only time I've ever been happy was when you were my boss. (laughs) (laughs) Which I'm sure Mrs. Reddy appreciates hearing that. (laughs) So the head of this society whispers to another dude at this society. And that dude leaves the building. And so this leader guy, he's like, all right, fine. This obviously isn't going to work. Just get the fuck out of here. But he implies that. Hey, we're choosing pacifism now. Yes. We might not in the future. Well, what might not? No, you aren't right now. Yeah. That dude is planning on murdering Jacqueline. Yeah. <laughs> and so Jacqueline does this whole running through the streets thing. She doesn't talk to anybody because, you know, that would just make too much sense. She finds somebody and then talks to them, though. No, this group she of ends actors up, that come out. She ends up accidentally getting swept up in this troop of actors. No, no, they come out when she's being stalked. She runs up to them and says, help me, help me, help me. But they're all drunk and they carry her to this bar. And that soon when they all go in, she takes takes this as her opportunity to get away. So she goes home and there's this woman in the hallway. Who we've met never. one time before. No, we've never seen her. Uh, no, they've talked about her before. Or we've seen her open the door, but she never talked or something. Oh, she's just the baddie lady that lives down the street or whatever like that. Or that that lives down the hall or whatever This like that. conversation is bizarre. In The Invention of Lying, there is a character who... I even think it's played by Josh Gad now that I think about it, but I don't know. Um, who tells the who tells what's his name? Uh, the dickhead from the office from the Britain tells him, "I'm gonna commit suicide tonight. I'm gonna kill myself." And he's just like, "All right, good luck," because it's they can't lie. So they just uh say what they're thinking, and he's telling him every day, "I'm planning on committing suicide." Is it Jonah Hill? Yes, it's Jonah Hill. <laughs> but so, like, it feels like that, only this isn't being just, done for comedy. Uh-huh. I really do want to talk about this conversation because it's very interesting to me. The woman comes out of the door of her apartment. And she says to Jacqueline, who did not ask, uh-huh. I'm dying. I've been quiet. I hardly move, and I rest, but I'm still dying. She says, I'm afraid. So it's kind of like this idea that she's living life, but she's not really living because she's terrified of the fact that she will eventually die. Uh huh. That scares her, and so she ends up not living her life. Uh huh. To which Jacqueline says, I've always wanted to die. So the other woman says, well, then why do you wait? And Jacqueline says, I won't. But then the other woman says, well, I'm going to go out and do all the things that I want to do. I haven't done these things for so long. I'm going to go out. Jacqueline says, but then what? And the woman says, I don't know. When the woman goes back into her apartment, Jacqueline ends the conversation by saying, you'll die. And this conversation is extremely difficult to decipher what on earth they were trying to say to the audience. Mm -hmm. Because, like I said, at first it seems like this woman is terrified to die, and so she ends up not living. And then she kind of comes up to the point where it's like, no, I need to. I need to go out and actually live. 
I'm going to eventually die, but I might as well live while I'm here. But from Jacqueline's perspective, it's like, what's the point? We're all going to die eventually, so why do we do this? So the conversation ends with Jacqueline saying you'll die, and it it becomes very muddy. I think we're all supposed to be on the side of the woman who says, you know what, I'm going to go out and do all these things. And the idea is that, yes, you are going to eventually die, but you should be doing fun things in the meantime. Mm -hmm. But Jacqueline's right. We all are just going to die. (laughs) So So you might as well live life. I suppose. So Jacqueline's gone missing, right? So Ward and Mary are pretty, pretty clear that it was probably the Satanists. So they go to the Satanists. And they're like, what oh the fuck? God. Where is Jacqueline? Oh, my God. And they tell, her, they tell them what happened. And Ward says... The devil worshippers. The lovers of evil. It's a joke. Pathetic little joke. You're a poor, wretched group of people who have taken the wrong turning. To which the leader says... Who knows what is wrong or right? I prefer to believe in satanic majesty and power who can deny me. What proof can you bring the good is superior to evil? Well, how does he prove it, Chris? By reciting the Lord's Prayer. And they are ashamed. They are ashamed. So how they defeat this group of Satanists (laughs) is by making them feel guilty with the, the Lord's Prayer. And that's the poet that does that, by the way. So, like, we get to see all these members of the Pilatists just, like, look away, look down, start to cry. What have we done with our lives? Well, we don't know. That's the thing. (laughs) What do these people get together and do? They have not made it clear whatsoever. Uh, At this point, the only thing we know is that they are semi-responsible for seven people dying. All of them, people who have supposedly betrayed the order and then killed themselves. Yes. We never find out what they do. Nope. Why they they want to be devil worshippers. Like, they aren't getting any power out of it. Like, we haven't seen any magical properties. Like, they, they don't do sacrifices. Like, what do you do? It's so fucking lame. Because... It comes from a time when you could just assume that everyone in the audience was a Christian, God-fearing, and would see that end and go, that's right. That is right. (laughs) It's like, Jesus. We get a final scene between Mary and Gregory, where Gregory finally admits that I love you, and you know that. And the audience is like, didn't, but cool. And then she says, I love you, Gregory, but Jacqueline's my sister. And he's like, well, I'm sorry I told you. And she's like, no, I'm glad. At least I'll know for the rest of my life. Well, that doesn't matter, because what happens in the last frame of the film? So back to the concept of, we're back upstairs at this restaurant where all the rooms are, and... After the conversation that Jacqueline had with uh, Mimi is her name, by the way, this other woman. After this conversation that they had, this lady comes out of her room and she is dressed up. And then you hear a chair fall over in Jacqueline's room. And this woman actually leaves the, the building and she says that line from the beginning about John Dunn. I run to death 
and death meets me as fast. And all my pleasures are like yesterday. And so it's like both of them have always threatened to do this thing and they never actually go through with it. And then in this moment, they both go through with it. And that is like the fucking end of the movie. So we know that Gregory and Mary are going to be married and happy. Yeah. And Jason and... um, Sister killed herself. She's out of the way. And Jason and the lady, the wife that runs the restaurant, the Dante, end up being happy. Just happy. Oh, good. All those horribly depressed people are gone. Now we can smile and be happy. (laughs) Why don't they just choose happiness? (laughs) Jesus. That's the end of the movie. Do you have anything else to say, Kelsey? I think, again, for 1943, this movie was impressive. Yeah, oh yeah, definitely. It was well put together. It was too edited, obviously. Too many things probably got cut out that would have made it make more sense. But I think it is good. It's just, it. like I said, not a lot happens. When you really think about it, yeah. she looks for her sister, finds her sister, loses her sister and then her sister kills herself and in the meantime she falls in love like that's really what happens here Mm -hmm. there's no like when you hear devil worship like you're expecting devil shit to happen but it doesn't at all just a bunch of people hanging out and saying hey how do we know evil is worse than good (laughs) just having philosophical conversations (laughs) and convincing people to commit suicide yes like that's all it's about but it takes some weird swerves, like we say, where, you know, you defeat the Satanist group by reciting the Lord's Prayer. Not because it has some great power that makes them feel pain, but because emotionally it makes them sad. Oh, you're right. The Lord's Prayer. That is truth. Just by its existence, we know we are all wrong. Like, what? It's nonsense because there were certain ex- so- social expectations back then that, like... I, I imagine, I don't know, was the was the code active at this time where, like, bad guys couldn't get away with things and your movie had to be, it couldn't be anti-religion and something like that. I don't know a lot about the code. I don't know if it was even around at the time. I have no idea. Uh, but it, that's what it felt like. It felt like they were compelled to end this storyline by defeating the Satanists with the power well, of God. What, that's what the audience definitely would have wanted yes, back then. exactly. Well, anyway, what do you think this movie has on Rotten Tomatoes? I'm going to guess it's very high, maybe 88? 93. No consensus statement. It only has 15 reviews. Do you think that that is overrated or underrated? Maybe just slightly overrated. I'd say it's overrated. I wouldn't put it in the 90s at all. Oh, okay. I think it's very good, but it's just too bizarre and weird in bad ways uh, <laughs> to maintain that higher rating. I was surprised. I was glad it was only an hour and 10 minutes, and that's not usually a good sign. <laughs> so what do you think it gets? I would give it an 80. Yeah. I'd say 80 is good. It feels weird giving it any higher than an 80. I mean, the thing is, is that, like I said, the film is so well made that I would give it, if it, if I was basing it just on the way it's made, I would give it a higher rating because this movie is impressive for its time. Yeah. But um, but just as a movie in general, like I said, not a lot happens. And look, I'm fine with 
fear being brought on on a psychological level and this did have a lot of like you were on the edge of your seat what's going to happen but like oh it carried me through the whole entire movie but again nothing really happens right and so the payoff isn't there one person is murdered and we find out and and we hear one person commit suicide Mm -hmm. and that's all that happens but it is there is still this kind of like looming terror yes and you're kind of disappointed when it turns out to be a bunch of people that hang out in a room yes (laughs) as if the idea that somebody's saying hey you know what why do we just take the bible's word for shit is somehow the scariest thing this movie could think of that is finally when you get to the end of this dark hall that terrifies you so much that's what's at the end of it is a little disappointing. Mm-hmm. But it's but it is a good movie. I did enjoy it. It did carry me throughout the whole entire thing. It just it took these weird swerves that kind of let me down a little bit. So I, I guess an 80 is is pretty good. Before we get to our next movie, Kelsey, horror trivia. What 1983 slasher film ended with a gender-bending twist by the lakeside? Sleepaway camp. Very good. Cause anyway, we're not gonna get there. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of things to say about that we've already said and probably got wrong. Yes, no, the movie's really good. (laughs) It just might have a negative impact on people and society in general by reinforcing certain stereotypes, whether it's actually saying that or not. Anyway, Kelsey, Mandy tells Mother Marlene that their cabin is located on what iconic lake? Crater Lake? It is not a real lake. Meteor Lake? Why are you going that way? I don't know. This lake is famous in horror movies. Lake Mungo? No. (laughs) Crystal Lake. Um, damn. Yeah. So that was a pretty interesting little tidbit, little reference to Friday the 13th. That leads us to 2018's Mandy. Written and directed by Panos Cosmatos, uh, additional writing credit to Aaron Stewart on, starring Nicolas Cage, Andrea Riseborough, and Linus Roach. What is Mandy about? A couple's idyllic, peaceful life is ruptured when the leader of a cult decides that he wants the wife. The movie is free on Shudder with a subscription because it is a quote-unquote Shudder original. They saw it at one of the film festivals and and bought the distribution rights. You can buy it elsewhere though. Uh, 3 to 4 dollars to rent on most services, 12 to 14 dollars to buy on most services. Should people watch Mandy? Eh. I'm going to say no. I could see why you would say that. They're just it, it it was built up so much and I said this. I said this last week. I hope that the build up isn't going to be its downfall. And it might have been. So if you haven't seen this movie, let us set your expectations right now. Because I think if your expectations are set, you might enjoy it more. Well, here's the thing. I said, again, I said this last week. Everybody told me how good Midsummer was. Yeah. I went into it being like, I don't know. And then I ended up really liking it. I was like, hey, the hype was totally right. So this has been majorly hyped. Right. And but- and unlike Midsummer, it genuinely piqued my interest when I saw the trailer for it. So I was like, okay, it's got good reviews. It looked good. I'm probably going to like this. And then it was not at all what I was expecting. This is my point. This is why <laughs> we need to tell people what to expect. Yeah. This 
movie has heavy metal influences and you sh- you're getting heavy metal horror. It is a beautiful kaleidoscopic vision, which you should not watch if you don't have a high quality TV. <laughs> Just I'm telling you right now. It's it got some weird dark and contrasting colors that if you don't have a TV that that shows it off really well if you don't have a high dynamic range, if it's not a 4K TV, like maybe wait until you have one of those to actually watch this cuz otherwise the the picture is a muddled mess most of the time when it could be these vibrant beautiful colors. So that's warning number 1. Warning number 2 What's going to happen in this movie, it's literally just revenge. And like I said before, it's it's a checklist. It's Nicolas Cage kills this person. Then he finds the next person, kills that person. Then he finds the next person, kills that person. You are not watching this movie for the story. No, you are certainly not. It is just a visual hallucinatory spectacle. And that is all that it is. And it is vibrant and compelling but if you're going into it expecting something philosophical it's not here if you're expecting a good plot it's not here if you want to see nicholas cage have a chainsaw fight (laughs) that's what's here (laughs) and it is very good at what it is but you need to know what it is going into it that's my perspective it it Like, I went into this knowing it was a revenge movie. Look, I understood the first half of the movie, we're going to see their perfect lives, and then in the middle, we're going to see it ruined, and then then it's going to be revenge for the rest of the film. I knew that was what was going to happen. I didn't realize that there was going to be so many scenes of just, like Chris said, artificial beauty. But what is it for? What does it show me? And there are a lot of times when I felt it didn't show me anything. And I didn't appreciate that because I'm sitting here trying to make your visuals be something extraordinary when, in fact, it's just beauty for beauty's sake. Right, right, right. But you say that like it's a bad thing. Well, it is when I, you know me, I want plot. Yeah. And it is for me. Like, the cell, (laughs) look, the cell has beauty but it serves a purpose. You are very specifically supposed to be getting insight into this character's world. Mm -hmm. That is not happening here. I am not learning anything about these characters because of the beautiful stuff you're putting on screen. No, it is just this dude wanted to tell a weird story with weird heavy metal shit. Like, even the animation scenes that we see, when he dreams, he dreams in animation. Sometimes. He, yeah, sometimes. And it's very evocative of heavy metal. Mm-hmm. Like, the movie Heavy Metal. Okay. It is just sort of like, hey, isn't this cool? He forges his own axe, which is doesn't look like an axe. It's all spindly. And, and there are these title cards that come up for the different chapters. And they're supposed to be evocative of things like, you know, sci-fi pulp novels and black heavy metal band logos and like stuff like that. It's just full of that kind of shit. And... If you've ever seen a movie or a TV show that goes into, you know, like, how cults are created, this absolutely does that. If you saw the season of American Horror Story where they were making fun of Trump supporters, 
He starts his cult. It felt very much like that. You know, it's kind of like somebody who's seen a billion of those documentaries about people who have survived cults and kind of, he kind of put all of that into this one tiny cult that this man has created. And my problem is not that you can't manipulate people. You absolutely can. And I, and they kind of build up the relationship so that you can kind of see how he started this cult, but it's undeniably unbelievable because he has so few followers. Yeah. <laughs> it, it and just, they they believe in him aggressively. And there's no explanation for why that is. Right. Just, just he's kind of charismatic. When he explains how he got where he is in his belief structure, like why he believes what he believes. And apparently he actually, I mean, he fools himself into into actually believing it. We get no explanation for how he got them. I'm one of those people. I've seen a bunch of documentaries about people that have gone into cults. And here's the thing. What you learn, again, I've never been in a cult, guys. I'm only telling you what I've heard from documentaries. But what you learn is that these cults do not start in the way that we are that we see this here. Because it feels like this cult has only just started. And when a cult starts, you need to give everyone a reason to devote themselves to you. And we don't, he, we get a little bit why they would feel that way, but not enough to the point where it, to the point where you're wondering if he really does have powers and there are things that might make you think he does. And I think that they wanted you to think that he did so that when you find out that he doesn't, it's this big like, haha, fuck you, you're nothing but a piece of shit little man. But you didn't do enough to earn that in my opinion. So this is why I think it's really important to set your expectations up as the audience. It's too late for us. But as the audience, those people who haven't seen it yet and are thinking about seeing it, it's very important that you get expectations set up. There is nothing literally magical in this movie. Some of the conversation around it, some of the advertising around it, and a lot of elements at the beginning of this movie might set you up to think that there is, and there absolutely isn't. We're not going to deal with, you know, Norse gods, there aren't any demons, none of that is a thing that happens. You need that set if there's any chance of you enjoying this movie. You can take our advice or leave it, but when we get back, we will talk about 2018's Mandy. Under the crimson, primordial sky, the wretched warlock reached into the dark embrace. His fist closed around the serpent's eye. Strange and eternal. I need you to get me that girl I saw. Do you know what to do? You're a special one, Mandy. I, too, am a special one. Let us be so very special together. So what are you going to do with that thing? I'm going hunting. So what you hunting? It's crazy evil. You think you're so... In love, I'll show you love. 
see the cosmic darkness. It glowed from within. Strange and eternal. When I die, bury me deep. Lay two speakers at my feet. Put some headphones on my head and rock and roll me when I'm dead. This movie also starts out with a quote, this time from Douglas Roberts, uh, a man who was executed about 15 years ago in Texas for kidnapping and robbery and murder, and those were his last words. That's how this movie starts. Kelsey, what happens next? Well, we meet our two main characters... Nicholas Cage and Mandy. Nicholas Cage cuts down trees for a living. Uh, she is an artist, but we will also find out later that she has a stupid job at a general store. Yeah. Um, uh, Mandy, by the way, played by Andrea Riseborough. Andrea Riseborough. I didn't recognize her at all. Yeah, she was in Birdman. Was she? Yeah, she was in Oblivion. Oh. Nicholas Cage's character, by the way, is uh, red, which of course it is. There's a lot of red in this movie. Mm -hmm. We get a title card that tells us it's the Shadow Mountains 1983, but we'd already figured out it was the 80s because they had Ronald Reagan speaking over the radio. There's a lot of these sort of title cards, and they do fun and interesting things with them. Like I said before the jump, things like, oh, it looks like the title that you would see on a sci-fi novel from the 80s, you know, that sort of thing. Or it's a death metal band, that sort of thing. So I'll be posting those to Twitter. So follow us, at Pod Cemetery. And then to reinforce the fact that it's 80s, we get an Eric Estrada from Chips joke. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> it's so good. Knock, knock. Who's there? Eric Estrada. Eric Estrada Eric Estrada from Chips. <laughs> Eric Estrada from Chips. <laughs> I was like, I don't get the joke. And Chris was like, it's not really a joke. I was like, what? That's why he's treating it like she's literally asking him who Eric Estrada is. <laughs> it's so good. And his just his delivery from Chips. <laughs> it's the most Nicolas Cage delivery. It's so good. <laughs> so... She's telling him about a book that she was reading about the galaxy, and they talk about their favorite planets. She says that her favorite planet is Jupiter. Jupiter is my favorite planet, too. But she says it's because it has a storm on it that could swallow up the Earth. The eye of the storm could swallow up the Earth. And if I remember from Bill Nye the Science Guy back in the day, it's actually three Earths large. No. Yeah. Across, because it's kind of oblong. So, yeah. But I'm sh- surprised that it's her favorite planet, cause, considering it's the red planet. Right. And then Red says that his no, favorite planet is Saturn. Planet. It is red, but the red planet is Mars. Oh, I always get that confused. Because, like, I, okay, so the, the reason Jupiter is my favorite planet It's because it's the big one? Well, <laughs> yes, but also in the fifth grade when we all did the planets, uh-huh. mine was Jupiter, 
Got it. And I, I, I made a really cool diorama of Jupiter. I was very proud of it. I don't know what my favorite planet is. I, I agree with Red. I think maybe Saturn's pretty dope. It has the rings. <laughs> That's really fucking cool. There are other planets that have rings. Like I think Uranus has rings, but not the way that Saturn does. That's so weird. I just said I think Uranus has rings. <laughs> Why don't we just all agree to pronounce it Uranus? No, because then it sounds like urine. Fuck. Rename the planet. But then he says, actually, my favorite planet is Galactus. And she says, Galactus isn't a planet. No, but he eats planets. They're... Nicolas Cage had to get a comic book reference into the movie. We've talked about it before. Everyone knows Nicolas Cage is actually Nicolas Coppola. <laughs> and he changed his name because he, he wanted to make it on his own, even though his first movie role was basically a gift. <laughs> but he wanted to make it on his own without the Coppola family name. And so he chose the name of Luke Cage and added that to the end of his name. Pieces of trivia that everyone already knows. This is the first time that I wrote down, I mean, it's pretty, but why? Yeah. I started to notice that. There's a lot of really pretty stuff going on with the colors, but it's just like, what is this What is this leading me to? Well, I think... <sighs> I think it creates a mood. Absolutely. And I think the prettiness changes. And we just think it's like colorful, extravagant, over-the-top sort of visuals. But they're different kinds of visuals. There's a turning point in the movie, and I think... I mean, you could argue there are two turning points in the movie. And I think the visuals sort of change in nature at those points. The, at the beginning, it's very... There's, there's more blues. There's a lot of, like, fogginess. And at the end, it, there's a lot more red and there's a lot more lights, like blinding lights than there, are, there is. Like the, in the beginning, it's more calm and soothing and second half is not so much. This was the first time I noticed that she had a scar on her face. It took me a while to see it that. It took me a long time to even notice that. And at first I thought they did it to her because I didn't notice it here. Oh, really? Even. It just didn't register for me. Yeah, it took me a while. I always saw that there was something on her, but I thought they were putting specifically, I thought they were putting shadows on her right. face. Right, yeah. Uh -huh. uh, and this is when I wrote down, oh, that's a scar. Yeah. We see that they have an idyllic life. They live in this beautiful home in the middle of the, of the woods. It's this cabin on Crystal Lake mm -hmm. that they live, you know, if you've ever taken a trip up into the mountains, you're going to see that there are these small communities, generally speaking, and some beautiful houses. You can get a place up in the mountains, like up in Arrowhead and stuff like that, for surprisingly cheap. But you're stuck in the mountains, and it takes an hour to get to your work, and you got to drive the mountain paths. And this is kind of the first time that I started to be like, I can't tell what is real and what's not anymore. Because there's a, a scene... And I didn't even try, guys. I, I realized very quickly, and I thought this going in, this is going to be a very visual film. And if you want to experience it, you do need to see it. Uh, so I'm not even going to bother to try and explain all the 
all of the visual stuff they were doing. But there's a scene where she's like in front of a fire here. And it's very unclear if that was real or if it was a dream. She also then will find a dead fawn in the forest. And like these scenes just kind of meld together. There isn't really any form of storyline of how she gets from one place to another. So again, I'm wondering, is this a dream or did this really happen? I disagree just because I I can see how you get to that point. Because there's a film language where you expect things to behave a certain way. And if they don't, especially that this movie has a very dreamlike quality to it, it's priming your brain to think that way. But other than film tropes, there's nothing about this that reads to me as necessarily having to be a dream. Well, but then the very next shot... She's waking up Nicolas Cage and she tells him, you were having a bad dream. Yeah. So I'm like, was he dreaming about her? Was he dreaming about her finding a dead fawn? And is that supposed to be uh, foreshadowing? Foreshadowing. Right? So I don't know. And does it go along with the fact that they're living kind of a dream life right now? Mm-hmm. That The fact that there's blurred lines Everybody get up. <laughs> between what could be a dream and what could be reality reinforces the idea that they have this very idyllic life. So after she wakes him up and she tells him he was having a bad dream, he can't remember what it was about. And they're going to bed. And he says to her, I've been thinking maybe we shouldn't live here. Which again, you might think is foreshadowing, but that she immediately says, no, I love it here. This is our home. And then she tells him a story about how her dad hated these starlings because they would eat the cherries off the cherry trees. And so... He killed a bunch of baby ones in front of them front and made of them kids and made do them it. Participate too, and then yeah. asked her to do it. And then she ran away. And you might be like, is this going to be important? It's not. <laughs> I don't think you can just write that off as saying it's unimportant. I think it's character building for her insofar as she was willing to defy this great power in her life in order to not have to kill a living creature. And that's contrasted with all the killing that is going to happen in the rest of the movie in honor of her. You could also say that, you know, the father felt the need to, like, do what was required and snuff out a life. And that is kind of the role that Red's going to be playing here. Did I ever tell you? I feel like I did tell you. My neighbors, I think I might have said on the uh, on the podcast, my neighbor's rabbit bit me and so her dad killed it in front of us like made us watch it's like nope can't be having any any pets that that uh, bite the kids dead and it was i'm not gonna tell you how but it was intense oh my god yeah uh-huh that's fucked yeah i have a story that could have been exactly in place of this one so i guess yeah Now that you say that, that does make a lot of sense. It does seem like it could be used that way. And yes, I do appreciate that it shows that she was willing to defy her father, which is going to be important later. But how important is it? Her defiance is a pretty big element of this movie. Her defiance is good. (laughs) And then it gets her killed. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I would also like to point out, this is the time when Chris fell asleep. I did. It so, is that slow. It is very I, slow. It's a it's a dance. <laughs> it's like walking a tightrope 
with what I'm looking for, like what I'm looking for in a movie could go one way or the other with like it. It's oh, oh, this is exactly what I'm looking for. And too far and now I'm asleep. You know what I mean? Like that's I might be notorious for loving a patient movie. This movie might be too patient in the beginning. And we all know that I lulls you to sleep. And I think, hey, dreamlike qualities, like maybe that's intentional. But then I missed the movie and we had to rewind. Well, I feel like everyone knows that I I do not really enjoy slow movies. I can appreciate them. I can absolutely watch a film and be like, I see what you're doing and I appreciate it. It's just not necessarily for me. It's funny because I'm also the one that likes the Fast and the Furious movies and Kelsey doesn't. So like. Well, uh, that that has to do with my second thing is that, look, plot (laughs) is very important to me. Okay. So when a movie is expected to be so prescient. <laughs> so when the movie is slow, if there's a good plot behind it, I can get behind that more. Yeah. This movie has not has not and will not give me enough plot to yep. bolster this slowness. There is no plot. Right. There's well, there's practically no plot. Right. And I think you're right. Like I, I anticipated this movie to have a little bit more of a supernatural element than it has. And it doesn't. I anticipated that. I also anticipated fast pace. I was thrown for a loop when this was a slow paced movie, uh, uh-huh. based on the trailer, the colors. I don't know. I, I thought it would be fast and it's not yeah. at all. Mm-hmm. We see her walking along the side of the road and a van drives by her. And this is way slowed down. And we see within the van, these very hippie-looking people, and one of them wakes up and sees her walking along the road. It's very slowed down because they're showing you that he is instantly attracted to her in some way. He's just, like, drawn to her. Yes, and she is just looking at him. This is Linus Roach. Roach, I don't know how you pronounce his last name and i apologize if i got it wrong (laughs) he's been in a lot of things unfortunately though he's probably best known as thomas wayne from the christopher nolan batman movies batman's dad minutes yeah but i mean he has lines and everything yes he was also in vikings he was in homeland he was uh the purifier in the chronicles of riddick i don't remember that character but i did love riddick (laughs) And Chris won't watch it on the show. Not Chronicles of Riddick, but absolutely to Pitch Black. I don't want to start a series and then not finish it. (laughs) I don't know, guys. What do you think? Do you think Chronicles of Riddick counts as a horror movie? We blur the line. Blur the line. (laughs) Quite often when it comes to what constitutes a horror movie, do you think it's worth it to blur it for the Chronicles of Riddick? And then we can do... Just those two movies. <laughs> I never saw Riddick, by the way. I still haven't seen it. I thought we saw it together. Nope, I've never seen it. I'm fairly certain I've seen the whole we've series. I really the, liked it. We've seen the Chronicles of Riddick together. Yes. But not just Riddick. Uh, I just remember thinking I was going to hate it. And and it was the movie group sat me yeah. down to watch Pitch Black. Yeah. And I was like, I really liked that. Uh-huh. And the Chronicles of Riddick, it's this big was sort of- actually very good. It's like this <laughs> epic sci-fi sort of thing, but it involves political intrigue and ghosts 
like so there is kind of an like i don't know it's it's interesting and i'd like to hear what you guys think tweet at us i just love that vin diesel loves the character so much he really does it's like his (laughs) character the video game really good anyway so this is where we are going to be introduced to the children of the new dawn they get their own title card we meet jeremiah who is Linus? Who Linus is, Roach, Thomas yes, Wayne. Thomas Wayne, <laughs> the Batman's dad. <laughs> so Jeremiah is not doing well. He is the leader of this cult. And again, guys, I've seen a lot of documentaries about cults. So have you, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure you have. So we all kind of have a basic understanding, as long as you've seen these. You have a basic understanding of how cults start. Now, this guy. Personally, I think they did a really good job of creating a, a character that would be the type that would start a cult. But again, you just have to take for granted that this cult has already been started and you're not going to be given any information about how that happened. Right. But again, it just it, it's hard to believe that he has so much control over such a small group of people, because usually mm. when cults start, they have to start by being loving and caring yeah. And to develop your cult. (laughs) Brother Swan, his sort of like lieutenant. Is obviously gay and obviously in love with him. And he uses that to manipulate him. Oh, that's really interesting. You didn't think think so? I think he's in love with him in the sort of way that like people are in love with cult leaders. Oh, no. I think he is fully gay. And Jeremiah is very well aware of that fact. Uh He keeps him on a string. Alluding to the idea that a romantic situation is going to happen. And then right when it's about to, he snaps that string and says, bring me Sister Lucy. But I fully believe that they're orgiastic. I don't think so. I think so. Absolutely. I mean, especially when we find out later that Mother Marlene is so fucking sexual. He, I think he is sleeping with all of them, if not all of them at the same time, at various points. And that's why Brother Swan would get excited, because he knows, and he's participated in this before. But Jeremiah is too preoccupied with this woman. I think you're right. He does kind of, like, snap that away from him and, like, go get this person. Well, no. As soon as he gets the guy to say, consider it done, oh, because he wants him to go and get Mandy, he has a conversation with Marlene where he tells her <laughs> that everything she does is wrong, and if she wants to ascend, she needs to work harder. Uh-huh. <laughs> then he has Brother Swan come in, and he touches his face, uh-huh. and he tells him, I can always rely on you. And then he says, consider it done, Jeremiah. And he goes, send in Sister Lucy, and then leaves him. And the guy's just like, and he yeah, walks but, out. But I don't, I mean, I yes... Yes, yes, <laughs> there are correlations to romance, but it, there's also like he's a charismatic cult leader who's supposedly ordained by God and him touching you is supposed to be something you seek out. And yes, there might be connections to sexuality, but it's not just sexuality. It's also godliness. Yeah. I think that's what they tell themselves. It's sexuality. <laughs> I mean, sure, I, that's an interesting take on. We're not going to solve the problem of cults in this conversation. Okay? But so, there are a couple things that I do want to point out, though, before we move on because mm-hmm. it's important. So, Sister Lucy, by the way, is this girl that probably was taken in a similar way that Mandy gets yeah, taken. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
And it's very sad. And there are a lot of things that they could have done with the character of Lucy that I will talk about later that I was not happy with. But very importantly, I need to bring up two things here. Okay. That were the start of this is a magical cult. Yeah. Number one, he asks him, do you have the horn of Abrascus? Yeah. And he pulls out this porous stone thing, like a shell. When he pulls it out, there's this bright green flashing light. Now, part of me wondered if that was just part of, you know, like, we're doing pretty flashy lights and Uh we want to continue that and we think that this is cool because for these people it is magical, so we're going to do that here. But that also makes your audience wonder, is that really happening? Is there an actual green flashing light? Yeah, there's a couple instances where they have objects and they do that with it where they like glow or whatever. And, and, you know, they, I think what it's saying is that these people find it important. But I can understand how it could also be twisted into saying like, oh, the, as an audience member, you should think that these might have important properties, but they, they don't. They don't. None of them do. But cults are cults, you know. But they haven't told me enough as an audience yeah. member to know that yet. So it's like a subversion when uh, when you find out, right? Okay, but also, we have seen the cult members. We've just seen them in the van very shortly. There is one person who does kind of stand out amongst the group, and he's quite large. Yeah. Jeremiah says, offer up the porker too. And the guy says... Yeah, that lard ass couldn't find his nose if he looked in, in a, a mirror, mirror. Or yeah, something uh-huh. like that. Because he's an idiot. I don't think that's because he's fat. But so, right. But at this point, what they're saying is, is that they have a person in their cult that they're going to offer up as a sacrifice. Yeah, to seal the deal. Right. And we don't know what that means yet. And that could mean so many things. I understand. But you have to get that at this point, this movie has done so many things to make me wonder what's dream, what's real. That yeah. I don't know whether to believe this conversation like, or are not. are they sacrificing him up to some sort of god? Exactly. Yeah, uh-huh. So I don't know yet. So the, they're putting seeds in my brain yes, for this that could aren't be. going to pay off. Exactly. Yeah, uh-huh. This could be. And I knew that at the time. I knew that this could all lead to nothing. But that, I'm telling you, this is where it started. And that will continue to grow. And there will be other things that, that nurtured that growth in my brain. So, we then see Mandy at, like I told you earlier, she has some stupid job at a general store, and this is her doing that, and in walks Marlene, the old woman who (laughs) was told that she does nothing right. Right, yeah. Uh, She walks in, and very obviously Mandy is uncomfortable talking to her, but then tells her where she lives. Yeah. Which was weird. Why would you do that? If you don't even want to talk to her in the first place, why would you tell her? I don't think she's worried about her. I think she's just like, she probably deals with a bunch of weirdos all the time. And it's just like, you know, whatever. I have an idyllic life. How could it possibly be shattered? So that night, we will see Brother Swan and a couple of the other members of the cult, including the one that they called a porker. They are all in the van. I think these are... Brother Hanker and Brother Lewis, I want to say. I never really got their names. I don't think they ever say their names. So Swan will get out of the car, as will this other guy who I know him as the open mouth one. 
He he always has his mouth open. Uh-huh. That's how I recognized him. That's how what I called him because I don't think they ever name him. So he gets out and they are both visibly nervous. Yeah. And he, this is another thing. He blows into that horn of Abraskis that we saw earlier. yeah. Whatever. That we saw earlier that had the green flashing light. He will blow into it and it will make a very magical horn sound. And then when he lets it out of his mouth, that sound will continue. So now, echoing, I think. Right. Again, it could be written off as echoing. But again, they've already planted Uh seeds in my brain that something magical is going on. Sure. So I'm like, okay, now I'm wondering, maybe that's a magical thing. So then (laughs) we get kind of a funny scene (laughs) where they get back in the car and the open mouth guy is like, how he asks, what now? And Swan says, we wait. Oh yes, with the window. Proceeds to open the window and close the window uh-huh. several times, <laughs> and I'm I was laughing so much. It was a really well done scene, and uh-huh. this one guy perfect just has this look on his face, <laughs> like if you do it again, I'm going to murder you. <laughs> but he doesn't. He doesn't say anything. Uh-huh. But you can just see it on his face, and yeah. I think that any parent, any teacher, anybody is knows that feeling of just like. Do it again. <laughs> One more time. Do it fucking again. Say it <laughs> again. So then they finally show up. Now, I know what Chris is going to say. They're on ATVs and they're on motorcycles. Okay? Admittedly, yes. And I wrote that down. I was like, they're on ATVs and motorcycles? But, you know, maybe it's like this sort of like... Uh, Biker gang demon yeah, group. exactly, yes. That's what I was thinking. Uh-huh. Because when they get off of those vehicles, they are backlit, which makes them seem magical. Mm-hmm. They also, again- Oh, there are these spotlight backlights all throughout this movie. Yes. But so they're backlit, so you can't really get a good, a good visual on what they are, but uh-huh. what you can see- is that they have spikes and they have nails and they have all of this shit coming off uh-huh. of them. Like Chris said earlier, very cenobite Absolutely. Uh-huh. You see them and you automatically think of Hellraiser. So that's why I'm telling you, like, mm-hmm. I was like, weird, but what, but what I was expecting from this film. That's another thing is that I went into this film yeah. expecting this kind of shit. So when this happened, I was like, ooh, I kind of like this. Ooh, a demon biker gang. Interesting. Uh-huh. But that is not what we're getting. No. And so it's at, a bunch at, of dudes in gimp suits is what yes, it is. That's exactly. At, but at this point, I want you to recognize that I was getting excited. Yeah. I was starting to get excited about something. Uh-huh. I thought we were going to get demons. I thought we were going to get. Like, he, when Nicolas Cage gets to the, the revenge part, I thought it was going to be epic demon battles. Yes. Not at all Just what we're like going to get. Just like a dude versus demons. Yes. You know, you're starting to make me think that, like, <laughs> wow, what this could have been. <laughs> and, and me getting really excited about what it could have been, and then, like, retroactively being disappointed by this movie. So, they get off. And they give him a jar. We don't know what's in this jar yet. He drinks it. This is the offering that they're making to him. And he says, blood for blood. So what do I think is in that jar? Blood. I think it's human blood. 
I think they are literally killing people and giving them human blood. I understand why you think that way. Me, the way it was like sort of coated in this milkiness. I'm like, is that a cum jar? (laughs) Which is a thing on the internet. Just anyway, that's originally what I thought it was. And then when they say blood for blood, they they mean, no, we need a human sacrifice, too. In addition to the payment, we need a human. And then they hand – well, they don't hand over the, the, the guy, but that's what's going to happen. Yes. Yeah, so later, we will get a silent scene of them taking the, the large man, uh-huh. which again led to me thinking, there you go, human sacrifice. Do you know what I'm saying? They don't even sacrifice him, though. Do you know what they do? Yes, I we'll think, get there. Yeah, we'll uh-huh. get there. We're not there yet. They don't say it outright, but I, yeah, anyway. When they say more, Swan says, first things first. Then we get a cut to Mandy and Nicolas Cage in their home, and what are they watching? Night Beast from 1982. I love the looks on their faces when they're watching <laughs> it. They both look like, what? Uh-huh. <laughs> so Nicolas Cage goes outside to have a cigarette, and it's like he can sense that something's out there. You know, he's looking out and he feels wrong and he flicks his cigarette. And I was just like, that is how you start a forest fire. Yeah. What are you doing? Like, you live in the middle of the woods. You cut down trees for a living. What's wrong with you? <laughs> that happens a lot, especially in the 80s. People just flicking still lit cigarettes with assuming that that's not going to cause a forest fire. Yeah. But again, that is how, how forest fires start. Well, that's also how I, I got my foot burned. Oh yeah. Uh Dude flicked a cigarette. What happened to me? Anyway, once he goes inside, we see these bright red lights coming from the forest, which again could very easily just be for mood or it could be because of their presence. Yeah. Uh-huh. Their magical, demonic presence. Uh, they come in, they take Mandy, and they also take Nicolas Cage. So there's there's this moment where, first of all, it's this kind of cool moment in the middle of this abduction, taking the cult member, the larger cult member dude, and where like a guy comes up from behind him from the darkness and then grabs him on both sides of the head from behind and then like pulls him back into the darkness. That's a really cool shot. When they're abducting Mandy and Red, they have them face down on the ground and all they can do is just look at each other. And Mandy, as this abduction is happening, everything kind of slows down and then she looks straight at Red who is in this shot, the camera. And so she's looking at red, but actually also looking at us, the audience, not only putting us in red's shoes in this moment, but also connecting her directly to the audience because she's looking right into our eyes. so it builds this connection between the audience and Mandy, and it builds this uh, alliance between the audience and red. We get a cut to Mandy, who has been taken and is being spoken to by Marlene and Lucy. And Marlene will say, don't worry, those scary men are gone now. Your husband is fine and he will stay that way so long as you do what you're told. And then she will violently slap her. Uh So she starts it by sounding kind and sweet Uh and then violently slaps her. And says, you know, do you understand me? He thinks you're special, and so the responsibility is on you. Because she's very jealous. Yes. She does not like that he has picked another woman. But she's also, like, 
yes, she's taking out her anger on about this on Mandy as if it's Mandy's fault. But also, she is building up this sort of Control. Stockholm Syndrome immediately in, in Mandy, or at least trying to, that I am capable of great violence against you, and that is a constant threat. And so you are going to really appreciate it when I'm kind, and you would better fucking appreciate it when I am kind, and that's how we're going to build this bond. But don't worry, they're not going to have enough time to do this. She gives her LSD through the eye, and then she also has her poisoned by a bug. We don't yeah, it know looks what like bug this it is. Giant mutant wasp. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's weird. She says, I call that the cherry on top. Yeah, so it's gonna really fuck you up. I've never taken LSD. I have no idea what it's like, but I imagine that it will fuck with you that yeah, way. <laughs> I imagine it's it's very fucked. I imagine it fucks with you a lot, and then on top of that, being poisoned by a bug would not so be. So maybe it was just a like a honeybee. And that's how Mandy saw it, was as this giant weird green wasp thing. Don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, people take bee venom therapy. Yeah, but like for cancer. Yeah, we haven't watched that episode. But so obviously some people think it has these effects. I have no idea. And Lucy, who is also, so they're all tripping at this point. And Lucy says, it's all but a beautiful dream. Won't you go on this dream with us? Yeah. This is when we will see them all. In, I guess, is this Mandy's home? I don't know if we have you know, any information I don't know. on where this is. I don't know. This might be their home. No, it's it's definitely not their home. They they just travel in their van from place to place. But where were they before? We never saw. We saw them driving, and then either, either this is Mandy's home, or they've taken over somebody's right. random home. No, but my point is, is that we saw them in a home before they got to Mandy's home. When dude's laying on the bed and talking to, and then the uh, the rest of the cult is in another room that you can see from there. Good like, point. they're obviously in somebody's home, mm-hmm. but we don't know what or who. So they're all tripping out on this huge couch, and Jeremiah is standing there wearing a, a kimono type thing. Yes. And he says, I'm sorry for all of this, but you called out to me silently. And he asks her, like, what she sees or whatever. And she says, I see the Reaper fast approaching. Uh Uh-huh. Which has two meanings. And even in this moment, I was like, I bet that has two meanings. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So. And he says, well, I'm sorry that you see things that way, but I recognize you. And I think that with time, you will recognize me. And he's just talking about how great he is. And then he goes over to... His, his record collection record player and he goes do you like the carpenters i think it's they're funny sensational because kelsey loves the carpenters <laughs> i do i love the carpenters they're so good <laughs> <laughs> he says, i think they're sensational but <laughs> do you like the carpenters i think that they're sensational but this is even better. <laughs> but I think this is even better. And of course he's talking about himself. You can see on the cover it says Jeremiah Song or whatever his name is. And he talks... Sand. It's Jeremiah Sand. He he talks about... So he plays the song and it's very much a hippie song about loving Jeremiah. Yeah. And... He explains that God showed... So he originally wanted to be a star, like a, a 
a singer or something yeah, uh-huh. and he he failed miserably and he and then he says that thankfully god showed me another path and he talks about how he goes like on a vision quest and how like this wave of pure heat went over me and that he and that he realized that he had total acceptance and that everything was actually his you know he is the second coming of christ basically but we're talking about dreams all the time in this movie i just like to compare Mandy's dream that she's currently living of this idyllic life with her husband and Jeremiah's dream about God and being ordained by God like and just how different these things are and how destructive one is while the other one is so peaceful that all dreams are not created equal and sometimes dreams are pretty fucked and that's why we have this horror movie that's very dreamlike this is a very fucked dream so he explains that he believes he can take whatever he wants which is why he took her and he explains that there's god told him everything belongs to you take whatever you want yes and the reason that he picked her is because there are very few who have had your radiance Mm -hmm. i have it you have it so we belong together let's be so very special together and he takes off his robe and he's he says, got his wang hanging out. Yeah, and he's totally flaccid. Like, I would have expected him to be erect at this point. Well, if he's erect, then this is automatically an X rating. You cannot show an erect male penis in a rated R movie. Really? Really. And he says, be gentle like me. And so she's sitting there watching him masturbate. And she's listening to this song, and it's just talking about how great Jeremiah is. And she goes, you made this song? He says, yes, I did. Oh, by the way, all of this is, is in slow-mo. Everything yeah. I just told you in all of five seconds, yeah, that's like a ten-minute scene. Uh-huh. <laughs> so she, And then she says, you made this song. Yes, I did. It's about you. Yes, it is. And then she just starts to laugh. I love that they got her so high that she doesn't know to be afraid anymore, which completely takes out all their influence over her. And she just laughs at his music while his wiener's hanging out. (laughs) Also, you know she's a metalhead. She's, like, been wearing Black Sabbath shirts and shit like that this entire time. Mm -hmm. What the fuck? (laughs) You think she's going to like your cheesy folk music about how great you are? He starts to masturbate angrily. Like, he starts to go really heavy-handed with it. I don't know it. why I never got the impression that he was masturbating. Ooh, you need to watch that scene again. Yeah. He's very clearly going like this. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone else is still in the room, by the way. And yes. they're just like, yep, this is exactly what we like. <laughs> he shouts, shut up, at her very angrily. But she's just laughing louder and louder. And then he starts to look at his cult members And like Chris says, realizes that this embarrassing moment is happening in front of his cult members. Uh But they're all so fucked up. They're probably not even going to remember uh that any of this happened. But But he can't have anyone stepping to his power, you know? Yes. And so he starts yelling at them not to look at him. And so they all kind of like slowly look away because they don't (laughs) even recognize what's happening. Yeah. Cut to Nicolas Cage, who is apparently tied up with barbed wire outside. Yeah. Cut back to... Jeremiah, who is now looking at himself in the mirror, crying. Uh-huh. What should I do, God? What What should I I do? Tell me what to do. And then eventually he stops. And again, this goes on for a long time. Eventually he stops and says, Don't ever doubt yourself. 
So he comes out to Nicolas Cage. Some people should doubt themselves. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. So he goes out to Nicolas Cage and he says, you and that ugly little whore think you're so in love, but I'll show you what real love is. And he takes out a gun, he takes out a bullet, and he... It's a revolver. He spins it. He puts it in one, spins it, gives it to Lucy and says, this is what real love is. He whispers in her ear first, and then he does this. We don't ever know what he says, but she does it. And she says, now show him how much you love me by playing Russian roulette. And she does it right in front of him. And Nicolas Cage is like, no, please don't 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 fucking do do this. And when it clicks and the gun doesn't go off... There's a big sigh of relief in both Red and Lucy. And Jeremiah says, another pearl wasted before swine. Then he will take out a a knife. And he will call it some bullshit. This is the tainted blade from yeah. some fucking lair. And they will again do the flashing lights. Yep. At this point, though... They shouldn't be doing that because those flashing lights, if, if, if it's all just in their heads, it should only be when we only see the cult members. Because at this point, Nicolas Cage can see it too. Why are we seeing the flashing lights if Nicolas Cage is also there? Fair. So again, I'm left to believe that maybe there are some fucking magical things going on. Right. But when you find out that none of this shit's magical, it becomes comical, which is good. You're supposed to be laughing at these people and how pathetic they are. So he ends up stabbing him in the side, and he's mad because they wasted their best on his whore. And we're left to assume he means his LSD. The chemist's best, yeah. Okay, well, I couldn't understand him. Yeah, we get introduced to the concept of the chemist at this point. They put her into a sleeping bag, they string her up, and right in front of him, they light her on fire. Lucy is the only one of the entire group who is not happy about this. Yeah. Everyone else is really stoked and laughing and while Lucy. Red watches his wife burn up in a bag, I thought for sure, because I didn't know this was a death revenge thing. I thought for sure we this is a thing that the movie sort of like I inferred and it turned out the movie wasn't implying at all was that she didn't actually die here. That wasn't her because it's interesting that they just bring a body in a bag out and we never see that it's actually her. So Lucy is absolutely terrified again. Fairly certain that Lucy was taken in the same manner that Mandy Uh, was taken. Probably one of the most recent, aside from the big guy. Yes. So she was just, all. she's in the same, pardon the pun, bag as as Mandy is. So I wrote down, this is an unnecessarily long scene, but this is an unnecessarily long movie. A lot of him just screaming, a lot of just watching the bag on fire. And then they leave. And I wrote down, why not kill him? Because here's the thing. You can assume that he might bleed out, right? You could, you might assume that he's tied up with barbed wire. They've stabbed him at this point. He's already been beaten. He's probably going to die. You might think that. They just committed straight-up murder mm-hmm. and left a witness. Yeah, I don't think that this is inconsistent at all. What is the one most negative aspect of this cult. The one most negative aspect of this cult. Their confidence? Arrogance. That's exactly what this is. They feel like they can do anything, he can take anything, and nothing bad will ever happen to him. Part of me wants to believe you. Never doubt yourself. Part of me wants to believe you. 
that doesn't fall in line with the character that we get at the end of the film. Yeah, because the facade falls away. What I'm saying is that he believes that God told him to take whatever he wants. When he has a, a, a crisis of faith, his lesson he takes away is never doubt yourself. I understand that. And I understand that cult leaders have to be crazy to a certain extent, but they also have to be smart to a certain extent. To a certain extent. If they're not smart, they could not do the things that they end up doing. Right, but it's a, it's a confidence thing. That's all it is. It's just he's so arrogant that he's like, you sit there and die in pain for what? The fact that you had this beauty who wanted you and I wanted her instead and she wouldn't do it for me? Well, then you must be punished because you stood in the way of me taking the thing that I wanted. It's his supreme arrogance. And finally, and as this movie goes along, that that arrogance falls away because it is demonstrated to him very clearly and very explicitly that he is not as powerful as he thinks he is. But it's not until that moment that the it's all the way up into that moment that he is the most supreme arrogant prick. And that is his danger, but it's also his downfall. It's the way I read it. Well, he does not die, and he gets out, and he crawls to her ashes, and it's very, very sad, and then he goes inside, and the TV's on, and we get a funny commercial of a goblin vomiting up mac and cheese, and it's supposed to be this big dichotomy, and we're supposed to be seeing him in this absolute tragic state, and then we've got this ridiculous commercial, and I'm just sitting there, and I'm like, I get it. Casper. I get it, film. Casper Kelly got right... Writing credits specifically for writing this Cheddar Goblin commercial. Who's that? No fucking clue. Okay. But I'm saying somebody got writing credit on this movie for writing this commercial. Oh, I know who it is. I do know who it is. He's the Too Many Cooks guy. Too Many Cooks? You've never heard of Too Many Cooks. I mean, I know that the saying of there's too many chefs in the kitchen or whatever. Too many cooks, too many cooks. It's a fake. Oh, my God. I can't believe you've never seen this. Okay. Too many cooks is a fake 90s sitcom where you just see the opening song where, you know, do, 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 do. Whatever happened to predictability? Just like that. But for this fake show, too many cooks. And so they have this theme song, too many cooks, too many cooks, but it goes on forever and ever and ever. It's like 10 minutes long and it is just the intro to the show and they're introducing character after character after character. And then things start getting really weird where one of the characters is actually like this serial killer murderer person and causes a glitch in the system whenever he comes on screen and you can't see his face or you can't read his name. And it's like this, this weird fucking thing. And it just took over the internet for a very long time. I'm, I'm, amazed that you've never heard of this not even slightly okay well i mean i've seen when they make fun like you know i i remember when they were making fun of game of thrones and they turned it into like a 90s sitcom intro with like them all like smiling cheesily at the camera and stuff like that i remember when they did that he was also a writer on a lot of other because that was on adult swim he also wrote a lot for like um aqua teen hunger force harvey birdman Aqua Teen Hunger Force. Aqua Teen Hunger Force. Aqua Teen Hunger Force. That song. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Don't block the screen, sun lunge across, trying to watch adults swim. Aqua Teen Hunger Force. Yes. Yes. 
squid billies, that kind of stuff. I, I just, I guess, I guess at this point I was a little bit irritated. I was getting, I was getting irritated because it's so slow and then they really want to drive home this dichotomy. And I'm like, I already get it. Why do you want me to sit on this scene? And it goes on for way too long. And it feels, it feels out of place. Yes, it does. Then he like dreams about her dying as a cartoon, as Chris mentioned earlier, and it is very heavy metal. Call it heavy metal. Okay. I can't, I can't believe you've never seen it. I, I, I totally believe you've never seen heavy metal. I rented it as a, as a child because I used to be able to ride my bike to the video store, in and out video. And I would, that's how I would watch everything because I'd be curious and I'd rent it. And it got to the point where the guy would let us rent rated R movies without parent permission. And so, yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. My local blockbuster never knew me that well, but even though I was there every Friday night with my parents. But, okay, so he will drink a ton of vodka. I mean, to the point that it's just silly. Do you agree? Yes, he drinks like an entire bottle of vodka, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And he, well, he also pours it on his wound. Uh, yeah, but, I mean, I absolutely understand that men have especially adult men, especially adult men who do drink. Like, I understand they have a better tolerance than I do. That makes no, sense. No, but it is a ridiculous amount. It is a ridiculous yes. amount. Uh, you're not supposed to look at that. At, you're not supposed to look at that and go, yes, that is normal. <laughs> I mean, what I'm, what I'm saying is if you drank that much, you would pass out. Yeah. Especially in the physical condition that he was in. So he's screaming and crying and laughing because he's just gone over the edge uh-huh this is this is Nicholas Cage's moment to be very Nicholas Cagey very. they just give him time to just sob on screen yes and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking and again I know this is terrible but I'm sitting there thinking I've seen leaving Las Vegas uh-huh seen it Nick yeah you could do something different here but anyway also I've seen Vampire's Kiss. Yeah. Again, you could <laughs> Again, you could do something different. Anyway. So he cries on that scene in Vampire's Kiss. <laughs> so he goes to see a friend. Yes, this friend is Bill Duke, who plays the character of Carruthers. Bill Duke. When I see him and I, and those eyes, I think of him from Predator. But he's also, of course, in Commando. He plays Trask in the the first series of X-Men movies before they go back and they make Trask a completely different character. He's, um, what's his face from Game of Thrones? Oh, he's in Game of Thrones? No. What's his face from Game of Thrones? Plays the new version of Trask, you know, when they go back oh, in time. And I so they, they completely recast... Not only instead of this big black dude, they replace him with a white little person. Like it's just, but this is all supposed to be happening in the same continuity. It's anyway. Yes, he gets his one scene in this movie, Bill Duke. This is where we find out that the Reaper does have two meanings because he says, I've come for the Reaper. Yes. In this case, the Reaper is his crossbow. Yes. And he says, it's in perfect condition, just like you left it. What are you going to do with it? And he says, I'm going hunting. Now, 
we don't have any sort of like explanation here. We don't. It's ev- just supposed to be cool. Exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. Thank you. I think it's okay. Anyway, he's like, well, if you're going hunting, I've got way more weapons that you might want to use. Specifically, he he gives him arrows or bolts for the crossbow that he made himself and that will tear through flesh and bone. Yeah, and he asks him, what are you going to be hunting? And he says, Jesus freaks. And he explains that they lit her on fire. Weirdo hippie types and bikers and gnarly psychos, the crazy evil... So what you hunting? Jesus freaks. I don't know that we're the season, man. Yeah, well. Just tell me, man. They lit her on fire! They were weirdo hippie types. Whole bunch of them. Then there was a muscle. It didn't make any sense. They were bikers and gnarly psychos and crazy evil again i appreciate that nicholas cage explains it this way because that is that is exactly what the audience got right Uh uh-huh crazy evil right but evil insofar Uh as they do bad things to people Uh uh-huh just saying did you know that the true evil is man's inhumanity to man i'm just saying (laughs) that if you're like me and you've been reading this movie up to this point this way, you're like, yeah, dude, yeah, crazy evil. Going up against evil, there's going to be an ultimate evil at the end, and there really isn't. This is when we get confirmation that these are not demon bikers. (laughs) They're just some dudes. Yes. Known as the Black Skulls, that they went around and did insanely evil things. To the point where people tried to murder them by giving them fucked up LSD. But it ended up making them love it. And now they're even crazier. The interesting implication is he never says specifically who they were running LSD for. Mm. And who it was that they pissed off who created this new LSD batch. Which makes them insane. Now, we do know... That the chemist that we've talked to before is the one who's making them LSD now for the children of the new dawn to give to these bikers to keep them on this sort of like leash to pay them for their services. So it could be inferred that the chemist is the one who gave them this tainted LSD in the first place and drove them insane. But it's never confirmed. Yeah, the guy says, yeah, and they did weird shit. And you should know that your odds aren't good and you, that you're probably going to die. You should know that well, the last time, the one time I ever saw them, they were in a world of pain and they were happy for it. Yeah, they, they fucking loved it. But you skipped over one of the best lines in the movie. I've seen them once from a distance. What you're hunting is rabid animals. And you should go in knowing that your odds ain't that good and you will probably die. To which Red responds, Don't be negative. <laughs> I loved that. Yes, that was very Nick Cage. I I would I wonder if he said that yeah. on the fly. Nicholas Cage will then show us that he has the ability to make really epic heavy metal looking axes. Uh, yeah. That apparently he's a blacksmith. 
Mm-hmm. He has a mold. Yes. I assume based off of one of Mandy's designs, and that's why it's so important. Probably. And yeah, he molds this sort of like, you know, band logo looking. Absolutely. <laughs> battle axe. Mm-hmm. It's all one piece. And it's just silver. And then, yeah, so he forges this. And then he has his crossbow. And then we get Mandy across the screen. Which some people say is a really late title card. Or it's the title of this chapter. Just like we've been seeing chapter titles this entire fucking movie. Why you would think that this is explicitly the title card of the movie. Because it shares the name of the movie. I just think this movie doesn't have a title card. Like why... If that's the case, if you didn't know what this movie was actually called going into it, why would you think that this was the title card and not Children of the New Dawn being the title card and not The Shadow Mountains 1983 AD being the title card? Because it shares more with them. Its only difference from all of them is the fact that it also happens to be the name of the movie. So don't treat this like this is a late title drop because it's not. It's an, I'm annoyed. It's so funny. I <laughs> so don't care. <laughs> like, it's everywhere. Oh, the title card drops an hour and 15 minutes into the movie or whatever. Ugh. Anyway. It really doesn't. So he finds them crazy quickly. He shoots the last, like, so he watches them go by on their motorbikes and he shoots one of them, gets him off, tries to run him over. Somehow that causes him to get into a crash. But again, they do not have magical properties, so I don't know why that happened, but it did. So He was driving so erratically and fast, and he hit somebody. I guess. But that dude's fine. But, uh, so... Then he wakes up, and he's tied up again. And, oh, dear lord, did I almost have a conniption fit. I was just like, no, 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 no. We are not doing this again, movie. And if you make me sit through this again, I will walk away. What did you think was going to happen? We were going to have more torture scenes. Oh, yeah. He was eventually going to get away, but we were going to have to watch him get more fucked up. I was like, I don't want that. We don't really get a torture scene. Instead, the guy who comes up to try to fuck with him, he ends up among other things, he ends up kicking at him and then dropping him into this giant pit that Nicolas Cage happens to be tied up next to. Yes. Yeah, he knocks him out with a pipe that he is able to, because he's, he's tied he to a pipe. He his hand yeah. by ripping the pipe out of the wall and uses that to hit him on the head. Yeah. He also calls him a vicious snowflake, which I didn't know. I mean, I guess that's supposed to be, it you know, seems- ha ha to you, you're, you're worthless, but like, little tone deaf there. I think it wants to be like an iconic line from this movie and I have seen it referenced elsewhere but it doesn't mean anything to me other than like you're vicious but you're fragile you're still human. This movie is just silly. Don't be negative. Cheddar Goblin. Like it's just a little silly. He ends up grabbing a box cutter, a bulletproof vest and then we see someone has been savagely raped. I was left thinking that was the porker from earlier in the film. That's what I thought ended up happening to him. Oh, I didn't. I don't know if he's got a good look at this body. Well, it's very quick. He sees it very quickly. I just assumed that was him. I assumed he was the 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 fat one in the suit that we're about to see. That they've already got him so hopped up on cocaine and LSD that... He's joined. That's what they did. They did took him as a sacrifice and made him part of the group. Oh. But I don't know. I, I literally do not know. I have no idea. 
Interesting. And there's also another person asleep in the room. Uh, they co- He comes upon another one who is watching porn and doing a lot of drugs, but that one sees him in the TV reflection, so he doesn't get to he doesn't get the sneak up drop on the guy. But it doesn't matter because the other dude who has a knife for dildo, which is taken straight from Seven, which is how that guy was savagely raped, he goes after him with that, but he ends up getting stuck into the into the floor yeah. instead of actually penetrating Nicolas Cage, which allows Nicolas Cage to kill him. Yes. He also gets very mad because his shirt gets ripped, and so he kills another guy. You're in my shirt! You're in my shirt! And then uh, Nicolas Cage does a lot of drugs, finds his battle axe. Oh, yeah, he just scoops up all that cocaine and... <laughs> yes. Yes, very silly. And yeah, and awkwardly so. I don't think it's awkwardly so. I think that's just what this movie is. I think it is awkwardly silly because I am watching this man go on this rampage of revenge, and then it takes these moments to be really silly. And it's just like, how serious do you want me to take your film? Do you care if I take it seriously? And if you don't, why do such serious, drastic things in your film? It, it just, for me, this movie does not know what it wants to do. I just think it knows what it wants to do, and what it wants to do is weird. I guess. I, what I, what I, okay. Movies like this, look, guys, we don't own our own home. We're, we're saving to do so. And when I do own my home, I am very concerned that people will come into my home and will think she had no idea what she wanted to do with this house. Because I'm in a very, I'm a very eclectic person, and I want to have all kinds of things around me. Uh Right? Things that don't necessarily match other things. The difference is I'm not trying to make money off of that, and I am not trying to tell you a story. These people are, and sometimes, you say this all the time, you have to kill your darlings and you have to realize that this doesn't work here. This doesn't make sense here, at least for me. But you liked it, so apparently it does work for some people. Well, I think there's a difference between trying to be profound and trying to be weird. And it does bother me when things are weird and ridiculous and off the wall. And it's like, oh, it's interesting because of that. And then people pretend to be like experts in that stuff. And like, oh, it's all intentional. And this is like, it's almost scientific how I'm accomplishing this art. And no, I think this this director and writer just wanted to make a weird thing and wanted to have fun making cool colors and have a drug-fueled nightmare of a movie and have a little fun with it. I don't think that he was trying to do anything necessarily profound. But so again, it makes it difficult for me to take any of it seriously then. Yeah, maybe you're not supposed to though. That's my point. But why do it on such a serious subject matter then? Because it's heavy metal. I guess because I'm so interested in cults and because I've I've watched so many documentaries, I guess it just seems they disrespectful. took some, disrespectful. Sure. Thank you. Sure. That's what yes. Yeah. It feels disrespectful when there are so many people who have fallen prey to cults. It really does happen and it ruins thousands of lives. Mm-hmm. So it it yes. It feels disrespectful to take something that seriously happens and be like, yeah, we're going to make this a cool revenge story uh, about a cult, but then we're also going to just put in a whole bunch of shit because I want to and I think it's fun. Yeah. 
That's what it is. It's a lot of, I think this is fun. And that's a double-edged sword. I, I definitely see what you're talking about there. Well, as he's taking weapons, he finds his battle axe, he finds his crossbow. He also finds, because this is all in the kitchen, he finds the jar. Yeah. And he decides to take a, a test. He, he dips his test. finger in it and touches it to his tongue. As soon as he does that, he trips the hardest ever. Like, oh, it was a jarring moment in the movie that it was just, it just seems so perfectly timed. Especially with everything up to that point being like slow and methodical. Mm -hmm. And this is where the movie's going to take a really sharp turn. Because now not only is he on his revenge trip, he's killed some people. He's now done a huge pile of coke. And now he's on LSD. And everything is going to get even weirder. Right. So this is when he starts his checklist. Yeah. Okay. So he's killed everyone he's met so far. Yeah. All, all the the people that we thought were going to be demons who were just people on drugs. No. Yeah. He, he killed them. They're dead. We well, there's one more that he, that he ends up killing near a burning car. Who he will have a battle axe fight with. Right before he dies, he will laugh and tell him she's still burning. Uh, so then... Um, Nicholas Cage lights him on fire, cuts off his head, and smokes a cigarette. Okay, checklist. That's one. That's uh -huh. one. Okay. <laughs> We're going to burn right through these people. Because, yes, it is mainly visual. <laughs> this was, okay, scene came out of nowhere. Out of fucking nowhere. So, again, he's on drugs, right? And, again, this movie was already not too concerned with telling you how they get from one place to the next. So all of a sudden he's in this barn and there are tigers in cages. There's a and tiger there's in a this cage. Dude. That's Joe the Chill from Batman Begins. He's the guy who kills Thomas Wayne. Oh. His name is Richard Brake. And the chemist says, well, first of all, he has a golden gun, which I guess is just for show because he decides he doesn't need it when he realizes that. Nicholas Cage is there. He like he looks at it. He reaches out towards it, but he doesn't grab it. The tiger isn't making a big deal out of Nicholas Cage being there. And then he mentions the fact that, oh, this is my tiger. And if she's calm, then everything's good. And then he just hits a button and lets the tiger out and the tiger just fucking leaves. Well, after he says, oh, God, you're right. And then he presses the button. He says, yeah. bye, Lizzie. So, again, we don't know if Nicolas Cage is speaking to him or if the chemist well, can this read is the his point. thoughts. I was going to get there. They're going to have a whole conversation where Nicolas Cage just stares at him and the chemist responds. And, okay, yeah, m likely Nicolas Cage is so fucked up that he doesn't even realize that he's talking to this dude, that things are coming out of his mouth. And then we're experiencing that with Nicolas Cage. That's likely what's happening here. Or maybe the chemist is just so fucked up. He thinks he can read his thoughts and just assumes everything he's about to say. And it works out well for Nicolas Cage. It doesn't fucking matter. But yeah, he lets this tiger out and then the tiger growls in front of the moon. It roars in front of the moon. And then he, the chemist says, oh man. They wronged you. Why they gotta be like that? Probably has something to do with all your drugs. <laughs> he also says, you exude cosmic darkness. Yeah. 
Too bad nothing's cosmic about this movie. And then he says something about the children of the North, and something happens with a green stone and a monster. And this is when I wrote, this is so slow, I'm so irritated. (laughs) She's just like a slow boil at this point. She's just seething. (laughs) So funny. Um, He's telling them where to find the children of the New Dawn. He's going to send them to a quarry to find them. So next shot, Nicholas Cage has set up things on the road to spikes to deflate their tires. And it happens to be Brother Swan and Sister Lucy. And Swan is just like, well, this isn't ideal. And he gets out of the car because they just don't think that anything's going to happen uh-huh. to them. And yeah, Nicholas Cage kills him. No by, big deal. By ramming the pointed end of the handle of this battle axe through his mouth. Yes. Out the back of his skull. And then he leaves Lucy to fend for herself. Didn't like that. Wanted Lucy to join up with him. Wanted Lucy to become a badass with him. Well, because from your perspective, she was built up a lot as like a victim of the cult, which she very much was, and hesitant to participate in anything, but like also wronged herself. And so she could get revenge. I think all the, I think what the movie was doing with her was a lot more subtle than what you were reading into it as being blatant. And her reward at the end of this is her freedom. But he does just leave her in the middle of the woods in the dark with no transportation. <laughs> so Really wanted her to go with him. Yeah. Really wanted her to exact revenge. And then there's this whole implication, though, that, you know, Red teams up with the young woman. That doesn't and, have to be a relationship. But there's an implication there. I think that's more of a you problem than anything else. (laughs) No, but then they'd have to address it or leave it open to that interpretation. And then that just takes away from the stuff they actually want to deal with. Or could have just ended with them being badass together and then she walks away. Yeah, but then it becomes about her. And this isn't about her. It's about Red and his vengeance for the death of Mandy. That's what it's about. And that is all that it's about. And they don't want to muddy the waters by bringing another vengeful spirit into this now he's gonna kill the open mouth guy with a battle axe through the head then we have a big chainsaw fight but this is not with jeremiah no jeremiah is not a chainsaw wielder no this is some other guy one of the followers this is the other one of the two main followers so there's there's kind of like this hierarchy right underneath jeremiah there's marlene and swan uh, as two sorts of different types of lieutenants. And then underneath Swan, he has his people, and that's... A group of dudes. Hanker and Lois and Klopek, and these three guys are the ones that he's killing sort of like first, mm-hmm. except he got to Swan before he got to this guy, mm-hmm. the, the chainsaw guy. And so since he's coming up on him and he has his axe, and then he sees that he left behind a chainsaw, and Red, being a lumberjack, is like, Fuck yes, I'm going to kill him with this chainsaw. And unfortunately, when he approaches him, he tries to start the chainsaw and it won't turn on. And then this guy pulls out his chainsaw. It's huge. And it's huge to cut down big trees. Yes. And he gets it started just in time to protect himself. And there's a chainsaw fight. This is not the first chainsaw fight that's ever been in a movie, but it's still kind of cool. It is cool. And then the way he. Unfortunately, it's not with Jeremiah. Yes, but again, Jeremiah isn't a physical 
violent man. He has everyone else do everything for him. You wouldn't want him to be some big fight. Like, there's this game. I'm going to spoil a game from the PlayStation 2 called Mark of Cree. <laughs> okay? It's a really awesome game made by some former Disney animators. It is a beautiful game. And it, it plays unlike any game had ever played up until that point. You have these different weapons that are mapped to different buttons on the controller. But... You fight a lot of enemies who are warriors. The bad guy team is led by this scrawny, skinny, devious little man. And when you get to the end of the game and you finally approach him, you throw an axe into his head and he is dead. You do not get a boss fight. Because what the fuck kind of boss fight would there be against this scrawny, scheming little man? There wouldn't be one. And that is exactly what we get with Mandy. Instead, you fight his most powerful lieutenant... And he's the one that's a physical presence. You do not turn Jeremiah into a physical presence. Rock and roll nightmare did. <laughs> yeah, they had to literally transform him into a demon or her into a demon. And yes, I know that's exactly what you were looking for. So I see where you're going with that. But barring that, this is exactly the way you get to this. You have somebody else be the physical danger and how he kills him is cool because i i came out i said he was going to come up with the with the uh battle axe he doesn't he comes up on him with a chain so he uses the chain in this fight and he wraps it around his neck and yanks him down to the ground and pulls him down onto this chainsaw on the ground and you just see it from above and he's shaking and there's blood splattering in every direction and it's pretty damn cool it is cool it is a cool scene this is when he will find a building. This is where, where the chemist told him their church was. Yes, and I wrote down, this is a very cool visual. This church is dope as hell, but when did they make this? Who had the architectural know-how to Maybe the guy that this? just got killed with a chainsaw. Probably the one cutting down all the trees for this wood. I guess. It... It seems like it's just too cool for these yeah, people to have built. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, Again, because it feels like the cult should be bigger than it is. Yes. Yeah. So he finds a hole, and out of that hole is coming smoke and light. But again, at this point, we've been told over and over and over again that no, there's no magical property. But again, we still have this this smoke and this light. And I'm tell I'm trying to tell myself. Nothing has been magical at this point. Let that go. Yeah. But I just can't because at this point I'm thinking if there isn't anything magical, then who oh boy is this ending not going to be great. I, so. Yeah. See, I came into it with a different perspective. And so <laughs> I came out with it. I came out of it with the different appreciate appreciation. The first person he interacts with is Marlene, who tells him about the uh, basically she tells us why she joined the cult. Jeremiah filled her head with thoughts that she was this radiant beauty and that she's the most sensual lover that he'd ever been with. She anticipates every move of her lover, and so she's just so good at that, right? Uh-huh. And, you know, that's just some insight into how she was collected for the cult, clearly. But it doesn't matter, because here's the thing. The next scene is pretty cool. All we see, all we see is Jeremiah. And he says, come no closer. God is in this room. <laughs> And then something is thrown at him, which causes him to scream. Do you yeah. know what it is? <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. It's her head. Oh, okay. And yeah, 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 yeah. Jeremiah has most certainly never been, never Presented had- Presented with this. Yes, yeah. uh -huh. that's never happened to him before. So he <laughs> starts screaming. And it is funny. 
And I will say that this is a funny scene and it's well done for that. But at this point, you, you've you taken away any kind of seriousness. You've taken away oh, yeah. any kind no, this of... this is a very unserious movie when it started out very serious. When it started yes. out incredibly serious. I will give seriously. you that. It, it lays a groundwork that this is going to be an intense and very serious, thoughtful, beautiful movie. And it just devolves from there. Just like Red's life falls apart as soon as Mandy is taken from him, the movie just devolves. And I would be fine if it devolved into madness. I'm not fine with it devolving into silliness. I don't know. There's still a shot coming up that's my favorite shot of the entire movie. It hasn't even happened yet. (laughs) But so, of course, Jeremiah goes off on this tirade about how Nicolas Cage is just meat. He said this earlier, too, about how he has no soul. How dare you try to stand up to me, the scion of the Lord, who gets to do whatever he wants. You have no spirit. You can't You can't hurt me, man. You know, like, what the fuck are you even uh-huh. thinking? You're drowning and I am lifted up or whatever, which is, uh, like, immediately, immediately he changes as soon as Nicolas Cage grabs his head. Yes. Because obviously he's he's like, okay, I don't have any control over him. Why he thought he would, I don't know. But It's he, that arrogance. Yeah, I guess. Uh, and as soon as Nicolas Cage grabs him, the first thing he says is, please don't hurt me. Do you want me to suck your cock? Right. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's that sort of thing. And he, he tries falls he, into a blubbering mess. He, he at first tries to be like, don't you see? God has led you to me so that I can give you your uh-huh. salvation. He's desperate at this point. And that's when he says, I'll suck your cock, man, please. I'll blow you. What do you want? Now, again, this is funny. And I understand why they thought this it's would good be. good to see this arrogant prick who ruined his life be pathetic. And you would. And I understand why on paper this sounds like this would be satisfying but for me, it just wasn't. When that moment happened in Mark of Cree, me and my friends lost our minds. It was the best thing that had ever happened. We were not disappointed that we were cheated out of a boss fight because it was like this sort of new and revelatory thing that games just didn't do back then. Like the, the, last, the last game that did something like that was Earthworm Jim. One of the enemies, the, one of the bosses at the end of a level was literally a fish in a bowl like a goldfish in a fishbowl. And when you get to him, you just pull him out of the fishbowl and swallow him. But the Mark of Cree one is like the end of the game. Just as you're building up to this point, just ax in the head. It's so good. And this is this, this is a similar sort of thing for me. It's not like it. I keep talking about video games because this is, these are my analogs. I know you've never played through all of Bioshock, but you get to the end of Bioshock and there's this moment that you get that everyone, when everyone talks about the good, part of the ending of Bioshock, there's this revelatory moment that happens. It's really, really cool. And then the game developers are like, well, we need to end with a boss fight. So then they take this other bad guy, juice him up with all this stuff, and he becomes a big glowing blue boss out of fucking nowhere. And you're like, what the fuck is this? It is the stupidest thing and the worst way to end your very thoughtful game. And so I'm glad they didn't do that with this movie too. So, yes, he has Jeremiah's head in his hands, and then he just crushes it with all of his LSD-fueled strength. Yes. And he walks away from the church, and it's on fire, which I thought thought was funny, because throughout this review, I've been telling you that, you know, 
Midsummer was all brought up, and I was like, "Oh, this is really oh, good." Now you have this wood building on fire. <laughs> just the like ending at the it end just of reminds Midsummer. me of Midsummer. Yeah. I'm just like, well, Midsummer was better. <laughs> <laughs> Two incredibly different films, but just like the ending is just like I would have rather uh-huh. I, I preferred Midsummer. And that's like almost the end of the movie. Almost the end. We have one last little shot where I think there. I think I I interpreted it as when he first met her at a bar. Yeah. He's just remembering that. Um, She's in the passenger seat of his car as they're driving down the road, except she looks like how she looked then. He looks like how he looks now, where he's wearing this, like, armor, and he's covered in blood, and he looks over at you, and the camera is both of these people. So when we see her, the camera is red, and when we see him, the camera is Mandy. And when he looks at Mandy slash us, he, like smiles at her and his face is just covered in blood. And the only thing that's not red about his entire body, including his name, are his eyes, which are open as wide as they could possibly be. And his teeth where he has this giant grin on his face. Like he's manically happy about the fact that he got Mandy back in quotes. Yes. And it's just the perfect look. And it is my favorite shot of this entire movie. It's very good. And then we see that, the terrain has changed into otherworldly planet. Yes. Thing. And because he's lost his fucking mind at this right, point. <laughs> right. There's a lot to like about this movie. It just, it, 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 there's just not enough for me to end up liking it. Yeah. And hopefully you guys understand. I, Kelsey and I landed on two very different parts of this movie. I didn't think it was absolutely fantastic. I felt it was a little overrated, but I really did enjoy it. And I enjoyed it for specific things that Kelsey didn't enjoy it for. And hopefully by the end of this discussion, you understand why somebody might walk away with the impression that this isn't as good as everyone says it is. Hopefully. The movie is also dedicated to the memory of composer Johan Johansson, who died before the movie came out. But he made all the music for this movie. Anything else to say about this movie, Kelsey? Nope. So what do you think it has on Rotten Tomatoes? I'm sure it's really high. Is it like an 87? It's a 90. There you go. Mandy's gonzo violence is fueled by a gripping performance by Nicolas Cage and anchored with palpable emotion conveyed between his volcanic outbursts. It seems like the wrong thing to be targeting in a description of what makes this movie good. (laughs) It has an 81 on Metacritic. Overrated or underrated, Kelsey? For me, it is overrated. Yes. I I think we all assumed that that was going to be the case. What would you give it, though? Don't be democratic about this. Don't be like, what do you actually think it should get? Look, I understand why people like this movie. I see that there are cool, interesting things about it. And you guys know that that is a big deal for me. That gets you a lot of points. But there's no there there. There's no substance. Right. So I'm going to give this movie a 60. I think it is is well made. I think it's interesting. I think it tried new things. I think it's skillfully made. It's just that for me, I'm, I would not recommend this to my friends. Put it that way. Sure. And I have friends who like this sort of thing. I would recommend it with caveats. And I think that's, that's the reality of it. It is way cool. And I really enjoyed it. But there are some major caveats. If I was to tell my friends, Hey, you should see this. It would be, you should see this But be prepared for it to have a very slow beginning. You should see this, but there is nothing magical about it. So don't expect there to be. You should see this, 
but you should see this, but you should see this, but there's a lot. Now I'm just saying you should see this, but (laughs) 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 but that's my point. I would give this movie a 78, not quite an 80, but higher than a 75. I can't bring myself to give it an 80 because it's not that good, (laughs) but I did really enjoy it. I think there was a lot of skill involved, but like you say, there's something missing here. There's, there's opportunity that could have been capitalized on, especially when you end it, when you're on, like, when you have this sort of like 70s and 80s sci-fi aesthetic in the the night sky with the planets. It's very Lovecraftian. It's very, there's a, all the colors, very evocative of like Blade, the Blade Runners of the world and things like that. And then I don't get any of that. I feel a little let down by that in retrospect. But in watching the movie, I really enjoyed everything I got. So 78 is what I'm giving it. This 18, is that enough? Hold on. Is that enough to wind up in our top 10 differences, host differential? It is. It's absolutely. If we continue at this rate through the end of the year, this will end up on the top 10 movies that Kelsey and I disagreed on this year. And we don't even disagree that much. We're still both on the positive side on this one. Mm-hmm. Any guesses on what the... No, we're not going to get there. We're not going to spoil it. You have to stick around at the end of the year, beginning of next year, for us to reveal what the movie is that we disagreed the most on. (laughs) All right. That is this week's episode about nightmarish cults. What are we watching next week, Kelsey? It's your birthday. It is my birthday. And then Kelsey's birthday is right after that. Yes. And we didn't do birthday movies last year, I don't think. I think, no, because that's when we did Jaws, right? Didn't we do Jaws for my birthday? No, we no, we did, or did Jaws we do, for the 4th of July. Or did we do Alien for my birthday? No, I can, didn't I can find we out. do I can find The out. Shining for your birthday? We did The Shining for my birthday. That's right. But Chris knows I really want to keep watching holiday themed movies. Yes, and if we keep doing like... <laughs> Like, oh, you know what? It's your birthday. You get to pick the movie that we're doing without any comment from the other person. We have to watch it. Yes, we could do that. But then we'd never get to see any more birthday uh, horror movies. And there are birthday horror movies. There are more birthday horror movies than we've already covered. (laughs) So next week, we are going to watch Madhouse and Red Velvet. I like Red Velvet. It's my favorite kind of cake. There you go. (laughs) <laughs> and they're about birthdays yes well we... red velvet definitely sounds birthday cake yeah sure i guess i don't know we'll find out sometimes we we hear that they're about birthdays and it's like oh the birthday and it's like a two minutes worth of the movie madhouse is about a set of twins birthdays oh one has just escaped from an insane asylum oh okay interesting Okay, cool. I'm excited <laughs> for that. That is next week. Until then, you can always reach us at our website, Pod Wait Cemetery. Wait a minute. Are you seriously not going to bring up the film that this sounds just like? Twins. Birthday. Birthday. Slasher. Happy birthday to me? Is yes. That the yeah, uh-huh. So we'll see, guys. Is it just a ripoff? We'll find out for I you. I guess we will, yes. <laughs> Until then, you can always reach us at our website, podcemetery.com. 
Email us at podcemetery at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at podcemetery. Since this movie is very visual, we will be posting a lot of likely screenshots for this movie. So if you're not watching along with us, you can at least see what we're talking about when we mention it on the show. That's at Pod Cemetery. Uh, don't forget to subscribe in your podcatcher of choice and rate and review. Again, five stars, writing out comments is the biggest help you can give us there. Better than that even is sharing us with your friends, and even better than that is listening in the GD first place. Thank you all very much. We love each and every one of you. Until next week, I've been Chris. I've been Kelsey. And this has been Pod Cemetery. But before we go, Kelsey... Any last words? Why can't everyone be happy like we are? Every seed that gives us life Every man must take a wife Only one sun ever shines Only one sun, yours and mine Jeremiah Sam If you're watching on the East Coast, the start of Halloween is just an hour away, but celebrating Halloween at 12.01 a.m. is just creepy and not in the good way. I prefer the left side. It's the more sinister side. Also, if you know I'm married to your sister, it makes it harder for me to get into your pantaloons. <laughs> De Bergerac. Whatever. Who the hell are you to say that? Just because you disagree with me doesn't make you right. Who right. said that good is better than evil? Who said that? Who made that decision? Right. Prove it. That leads us right into... <laughs> I don't know what else... You're not saying anything. And But the point is, is that this woman down the hall who never leaves her room is like, I'm finally going to leave my room. I'm going to get dressed up and I'm going out on the town. And Jacqueline's like, yeah, sure. I'll believe it when I see it. I'm going to go in this room and I'm going to kill myself. And this lady's like... Good luck or whatever. Like, it's the sort of thing where, like, it's these things that that both of these women threaten to do all the time and they, they've they never done it. Yeah, she was in Birdman. Was she? Yeah, she was in Oblivion. Oh, saw both those movies. But yeah. <laughs> right now, I, all I remember about Birdman is, of course, what's his name? And Emma Stone. Michael Keaton. Uh-huh. And... I'm surprised you don't think of Ed Norton. Edward Norton is in that movie? Yes, he's the other actor. Oh my god. I wasn't a big fan. Neither was I. I was not a big fan. Neither was I. Especially when the whole premise is that it doesn't cut away, and then they do things where it was like, oh, that would have been impossible without a cut, and then you repairing it with computer graphics, then it suddenly becomes unimpressive. Oh, you just did it with computers. That's not impressive. Like 1917. <laughs> <laughs> it takes a lot of planning, but is it really impressive? <laughs>
So when you say blurred lines, if I'm editing this, there's no blurred way lines. I'm not putting in. I hate these blurred lines. <laughs> there's no way it's mm-hmm. not happening. Batman. I'm Batman. I'm Batman. Batman. I can't do it. And then he does that thing <laughs> in this new trailer where you want him to say, I'm Batman. You also dread that he's going to say, I'm Batman. And then he says, I am vengeance. And you're like, what? <laughs> I don't know if that's good or bad. <laughs> They're trying something new. I'm excited for it. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. So he has a conversation with Mother Marlene, which, by the way, do you think they took that from Marthi- Marcy? Marcy? Marcy May Marlene? Martha Marcy May Marlene? Marcy? Martha Marcy May Marlene. <laughs> I don't, I mean, Marlene is a name. I know, but don't you think it's weird that it happens to be about a cult? I've never seen that movie. Oh, yes, you did. We saw it together, and we both hated it. Are you sure? Yeah. Hold we were on. both like, this movie is bad. <laughs> Martha Marcy May Marlene. I don't know that I've ever seen this well i know i did and i know i did not like it haunted by painful memories and increasing paranoia a damaged woman struggles to reassimilate with her family after fleeing an abusive cult maybe remember she she's in a cult where uh they they take women it's a hippie cult yeah they take women and she starts to participate as soon as she's been assimilated and then she becomes motherly, and then she escapes because she realizes after she helps a woman be assimilated, she's like, I just helped that woman be raped, and that's when she runs away. And then she meets up with her sister, and her sister desperately wants to have a baby, and she tells her, you'd be a terrible mother. You don't remember this? I guess, maybe. <laughs> I, I completely rejected it from my mind. It's really bad. Anyway, like, there's just so much they could have done with that, and they fucked it all up. But anyway, Marlene, that's what I thought. Mm-hmm. And he takes off his robe and he's he says, got his wang hanging out. Yeah. And he's totally small. Like I would have expected him to be erect at this point. Well, if he's erect, then this is automatically an X rating. You cannot show an erect male penis in a rated R movie. Really? Really? Oh, okay. You say, you say he's totally small. He's flaccid. Don't be negative. (laughs) (laughs) So good. Let me get his name. He's not the guy from the Red State and T- Walrus movie. No, not at all. No. Do they not look alike? No, not at all. I think they do. In my head, they look the same. Okay. But no, they don't look fucking anything alike. <laughs> They're not both old men with big eyes. No, I mean, I guess they have kind of big eyes, but no. Wheels. Tires. He's a villain. He's a super villain. <laughs> He's evil. He tries to kill you. Little goldfish. Yeah, I know. 